Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 235th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that still stands, as should we all, with the movement to end racial injustice and defund police services in favor of more effective options. We're also pretty into fair and free elections these days. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Hot Dad Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Sorry, did you say Hot Dad? Yep. Okay. You're not, you're not, you're not going to take it? I will. I haven't posted a selfie in quite some time, but I mean, I'm not going to argue. You're right, you're right. I, uh, I mean, even even if you've got a dad bod brewing, it's in comparison to everybody else's COVID bodies, so you're probably doing just fine. Sure. Well, you know, I was going, I was playing racquetball three times a week before all this, and now I'm not at all, so that's a bummer. <laughs> I really miss that. Um, well, I'm glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with everybody. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, can I read you a uh, testimonial from one of our pro traders that was posted, say, 30 minutes ago? Oh, please do. It took one day. And the yearly membership paid for itself. One day. Period. Group buys are great. Period. Apparently, I've been doing MGG Finance wrong this whole time. We'll just leave that at that. It is uh, not hard to miss with those. Yep. Or It's, it's hard to it's miss. It's hard to those. miss. Yeah. yeah. That sounds better. Yeah. All right. So what's on our agenda this week? Busy, All right. Busy. Well, uh, yeah. So... Segment one, our MTGO metagame week in review, which is soon to be all a flurry. Uh, segment two, our top paper movers, cards that have moved the most in price this week. Uh, a little bit going on this week. Probably going to be more to talk about next week. Segment two B, our top moto movers. Uh, segment three of the cards, James and I think you should have your eye on, our, our paper cards to watch. Um, and then there wasn't really anything else going on this week. We weren't sure what to devote segment four to. I guess we'll talk about <laughs> Kaldheim, Time Spiral, Strixhaven, Dungeons and Dragons, Modern Horizons 2, Double Innistrad, Walking Dead, uh, Secret Lair, Zenicar Booster Collection. The Jace uh, Shoes and Jay the Shoes. Yargle Secret Lair. Yeah, okay. So not a lot to go on, but that'll at least get us something. Uh, <laughs> show's going to be about four and a half hours, folks, so get a diaper. Yeah, this is... Uh, okay. So, okay, so segment one, MTGO Modern, but it might again we can review. People played Magic on Modern, uh, or on Moto. That, is that good? We good there? <laughs> <laughs> Modern and Pioneer looking much the same as they have the last few weeks, with a few standout decks. So we've still got five color Niv-Mizzet posting up regularly in the top eights for Pioneer. Uh, especially ever since the three combo decks were banned out of the format. <laughs> so five-color Niv in first and sixth in the August 31st Pioneer Challenge on Magic Online. 
Mono black vampires uh, and mono black aggro with less of a vampire focus, both in the top eight and second and fourth, respectively. And it's uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Soren when we get to uh, my callouts for the week. Mono green planeswalkers is another deck that keeps showing up in the pioneer lists over and over and over again um, on the back of having access to multiple lands that can generate multiple mana and 12 pretty nasty planeswalkers in the form of Karn the Great Creator, four Nissa who shakes the world, and four Vivian Arkbow Ranger, all of which do a lot of work. Uh, the the five-color Niv-Mizzet decks over there in Pioneer are tempting, and Liz was talking about Niv-Mizzet as a possible pickup, um, which I know we've talked about. It's come up before, um, but I still think that's probably not the worst of ideas, um, just that it's been doing you know well in Pioneer and Modern and um got some more stuff in the pipeline so uh, that might be something to keep your eye on if you haven't been already and it's a decent commander card that is Mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. very unlikely to show up in any reprints it's not i don't think it's going to be in the list i don't think it's going to be in commander legends you know it's ostensibly just rotating out now so shouldn't have been on wizard's radar when they were setting those lists and uh, yeah, I mean, it's been very consistent. Almost no matter what brokenness the very pioneer and modern have thrown at it, it has continued to top eight. So, uh, and it's a five color list. So, it, anytime a great new uh, two color card is printed, they get gain a new option. Yeah, a couple of their um, bi color cards are a little dicey. So they're always in the business to see some potential serious upgrades. Mm-hmm. Fifth place in that uh, Pioneer Challenge is the Black Red Croxalis. This one jumps out at me uh, for being pretty cute with Village Rights. Village Rights is the one mana black spell out of Core 21 that lets you sack a creature, draw two cards. So you put Croxa into play and put its sacrifice trigger on the stack. Then you sack it to Village Rights, draw two cards. Uh, each opponent discards a card and... You've got Crocs in the graveyard ready to rock and roll after they've lost the three life. Yeah, uh, that's a, that's amusing. It seems like one of those little value interactions that I would try and build the deck around in modern and ultimately find that it wasn't cutting the mustard because even when it worked, it was fine and it was useless when I didn't have both halves. <laughs> uh, but I respect I respect the game. Maybe well, it works better there. Well, it's nice here because they still they have access to four young pyromancer as well, so they can often sack an elemental token instead to get the two cards. Yeah, that's nice because I would imagine the way you can layer those, you get the token and then you just sack the token. Yeah, and they're also running uh, three claim to fame, which lets them bring Croxa back <laughs> at, or pyromancer back and and keep rolling. They've also got Abbot of Carol Keep and Dreadhorde Arcanist. To fool around with so there's a bunch of little synergies here that add up to a, a deck that puts pressure on isn't oh uh modern horizons that's what it was i was say isn't it claim the f- fame the second version of an of the unearth effect and i thought there was something else that they were using in modern but it's unearth was in modern horizons so not legal for pioneer correct um so then we have esper yorion control one of the uh few companions to still be putting up results after they were nerfed uh, this is 80-card uh, Esper Planeswalkers, plus a, a bunch of counterspells and control elements. And then probably the most interesting deck of the Pioneer Top 8 is the 8th place deck, which is a Dredge variant, as it were. Uh, it doesn't have many of the classic Dredge cards, but it does aim to dump a whole bunch of cards in the graveyard and then 
fool around with creeping chill it's got breaking and entering to dump tons of stuff into the yard and then the entering i guess can pull creatures out of the graveyard and make them do nasty things they've got uh lotlith trolls to discard to the yard merfolk <laughs> secret keeper prized amalgam satyr wayfinder silver smoke ghoul stitcher supplier and three uro and then a brokos apex of forever you get to use one of your godzilla cards if you want to break out a foil bio quartz space godzilla to add into the mix lotless trolls a bit of a throwback there that's one that we see pop up every now and then and everyone who played during return to ravnica goes is this finally time for my lotless troll spec to shine and it is not they're also get they also get to use death right shaman and fiend artisan uh cards that you know were respectively hyped for being un, for being not banned in the format and then assumed to be one of the better cards out of uh, Ikoria, although the jury still seems to be out. We need to get some Grim Flare action in there too. Sure. So moving on over to the modern challenge from August 31st. Uh, no, sorry, I guess August 30th was the modern challenge. Uh, looks like top uh, first place and third place were both blue-red prowess. This is, seems to be the aggro burn deck of choice uh, these days. It's... Uh, a Brazen Borrower, four Monastery Swift Spear, four Soul Scar Mage, four Sprite Dragon out of Ikoria, and four Stormring Entity out of Core 21, three Light at the Stage, and then a whole bunch of free or very close to being free spells, including Lava Darts, Lightning Bolts, Metamorphose, Mutagenic Growth, Opt, and Wild Slash. Okay. You just get some threats on the table, cast a whole pile of instants, and just hit them upside the head a bunch. Yeah, that's a popular archetype. Uh, Team of Rec- Reclamation decks also making uh, consistent inroads. In Modern, we see a uh, three-color build uh, in second place with Uros, 25 Instants, Shark Typhoon, and two Wilderness Reclamation, 27 Lands. And then again, uh, we see it in fourth place, but this version is four-color Bant, uh, if I'm not mistaken. No. Uh, just Bant. There's no red in here that I can see. So they basically use two Teferi Hero of Dominaria and one three Fairy with three Uro, 20 instants, most of which are either Nexus of Fate, Growth Spiral, or uh, either ki- uh, Counter Spells or Path to Exiles, and then a Shark Typhoon and three Wilderness Reclamation. I think these, uh, these Reclamation decks are going to be getting a treat here with these uh, flip card lands on the horizon because they basically get to play a million lands to make sure they're always in their land drop. But when they don't need it, they're still going to have spells. And even if they're not the most mana efficient, who cares? You're playing Team of Reclamation. You have a lot of mana to work with. Given that the lands come into play tapped, I would think that they would be more interesting in something like Amulet. Amulet Titan might have more use for them right out of the gate, but it, uh, I'm very curious to see... You know, some of these, you know, Yorion brews that have 26, 27 lands, uh, these Wilderness Reclamation decks, 27, 28 lands, like how, how and the Titan builds, Scapeship builds, how many utility lands of that nature they're willing to let come into play tap so that they can use them as spells later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it'll definitely be one of those things that's... Uh, going to be hard to evaluate the utility of those dual flip lands and how good they actually are per archetype Mm -hmm. Uh, a 12 walker tron build with the 
eight green spells, Ancient Stirrings and Sylvan Scrying, um, Karn Liberates, Liberated, Karn the Great Creator, Ugin the Ineffable, and Ugin the Spirit Dragon, and then Embercool, Ulamog, Walking Ballista, and Wormcoil Engine. In sixth, uh, fifth place, Bant Control in sixth place. Um, this is inter- interesting because I call it Control, but it's almost like mid-range Control because it's got a Stoneforge Mystic package in there. It's got some Ice Fang Coattles, four Planeswalkers in the in the form of Jason Mind Sculptor and three, uh, three Fairies, a Shark Typhoon. Uh, there's a lot of little elements that combine here to have a control-ish deck, but that is still trying to kill you with, uh, you know, creatures on board eventually. It's a, a lot of Shark Typhoon. I know we talked about that last week too, but just noticing it again that it just keeps popping up. Yep, it's it's just a, a default staple in Pioneer and modern control, control builds at this point. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Jund in seventh, pretty classic looking version there with uh, Bloodbraid Elves. And then Bant Flicker. This is probably the most interesting deck of either top eight. This is three Teferi Time Raveler, four Aethervile, 21 creatures, and then four Elodomri's Call, four Ephemerate, and three Path to Exile. If you have already forgotten, Ephemerate is the Flicker card from Modern Horizons that exiles target creature you control for one white mana and then returns it to the battlefield. And then it has Rebound, so that means you can... Uh, you get to cast it again for free the turn after you cast it the first time. So for one white mana, you basically get to flicker and flicker again the next turn. So it's all about which creatures you're doing that to. This deck has a Deputy deputy of Detention, four Eternal Witness, a Gaddock Teague, three Ice Fang Quaddle, a Meddling Mage, two Noble Hierarch, a Soul Herder, a Stonehorn Dignitary. That's the one four that forces the uh, opponent to skip their next uh, combat phase. So if you get a whole bunch of ephemerate type effects uh, on top of the dignitary, you can keep saving it from things and like removing the opponent's uh, attack phase semi-permanently. Thassa Deep Dwelling, two Uro, a Venser Shaper Savant, and three Watcher from tomor- for Tomorrow, also from Modern Horizons. That's the two one that when it leaves the battlefield, you put the exiled card into its owner's hand and it has Hideaway, which is... The mechanic that looks at the top four cards of your library, and you get to exile one card. Uh, so it's it's basically searching up the best of four cards and giving it to you later when it leave, when it gets flickered out of play. Ephemerate it does a lot of work if you're in the market for that, and you know for the most part we typically haven't seen that effect being good enough um in a lot in a, in a competitive environment but you're getting a, a lot of value out of one mana so uh i guess it was it, you know we say that um you know the the cards get more powerful over time if they're open-ended like you know kind of ephemera is and sometimes you look at it and you're like well modern's been around for a long time like what at this point were they really going to add that's suddenly going to make this one good that like nothing else did but i don't know maybe maybe it just took 10 years to hit critical mass but uh the the card does a lot for you for one mana and it's exciting to see flicker strategies might actually be competitive viable it's pretty funny with uro right (laughs) yeah i mean he's definitely a a good vehicle to make that card work and then you've got a soul hoarder in the deck too Uh, at the beginning of your end step you may exile another target creature you control and return so that's your like ephemerate on a stick the noble hierarchs don't care much but Meddling Mage lets you reset to a different card to block. 
Ice Fang Quaddle draws you another card when it flickers in. Eternal Witness, of course, brings you back cards, so you can, like, Eternal Witness with... Uh, uh, I guess you can't get Ephemerate back, but you can get Eladomri's Call, Path to Exile, or any of your other creatures. Um, and a lot of this stuff can happen at instant speed, because remember, you're, you're packing four Ethervile. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting tech here, the Aethervile. It's cute. So I, I have no idea if it, this looks to me like a kind of a one-off top eight appearance where who knows if we'll ever see the deck again. But if I was, you know, sleeving up to go try something, I, this would probably be the one I would pick out to fool around with. It, it's the deck you are going to try and have the most fun with. Mm-hmm. All right. So moving on over to top paper movers of the week. We'll start at the bottom. Zerillion of the Claw. Um, moving from, I think it was from Mirage, moving from $5 to $8. Reserve list targeting continues in earnest, uh, and Cliff called this back on episode 230 to get swept up in it, and indeed we see some movement here. Buy lists are not cooperating yet for most of this lower-end RL stuff, so you know, best of luck to the people that are just piling on hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of poor reserve list choices instead of going after a bunch of awesome staples that are draining out of the market. I, I got to sell three Season of the Witch this week. Sure. That was one of the ones that popped, yep. Yep. And I looked down at my phone and said, you sold Season of the Witch. I'm like, huh, interesting. And then it was like another email, you sold Season of the Witch. I'm like, oh, okay. Somebody <laughs> somebody went in on it. Sure, why not? I sold them for like 15 bucks a piece. And I'm like, I don't remember what I paid, but I know it wasn't $15. Yep. And they're hoping they're going to get 30 or whatever. Yeah. And maybe they will, and mayhaps they may not. Yeah, more power to them. Gauntlet of Power, Masterpiece uh, Invention Edition, going from 55 to 90. This is just, it's been a like solid half decade since they these came out now. And uh, the Masterpieces that weren't already drained to almost nothing are slowly draining out. Gauntlet of Power hasn't had another reprint since this, and this was, it wasn't like it was, it appeared in a set alongside this. It was you know, just this uh, invention printing. It's not a huge EDH card by any means, but uh, it's not a trivial one either, and not su- super surprised to see, you know, we Masterpiece Manor Crypt and Soul Ring basically dwindled down to almost nothing, and for some of that shine to be extending further down the list. I was just looking through these, in fact, um, not just Gauntlet of Power, but the inventions in general. Some of them are a little pricier than I realized, but not all of them are. Um, Some of them seem to be kind of languishing a little bit. And I actually have a handful of them, uh, of inventions just scattered. And I've been wondering how long I can ride that train for, if it's time to start thinking about just ditching them for roughly what I paid for them and seeing what happens. Um, Because, you know, Gauntlet of Power moved here, but some of them, I mean, like Chromatic Lantern, it seems like it's languished for a while. Uh, Yeah, it just just got a standard printing that had tons of foils hanging around. Sure, which is fair, but I mean, you know, I think we can agree that these are pretty, I would say, pretty disconnected from, you know, just a pack foil copy. Normally we would think so, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe maybe there's more evidence to that than I guess I would expect at first glance. Like, oh, there's four pack foil versions of this card, and obviously they're nowhere near the same as the invention, but like maybe that's just enough to satiate the demand. But at the same time, I don't know, Soul Ring's got multiple foil copies by now, doesn't it? Oh, many. And you've got, and the inventions, uh, and those just sold out. So, I don't know. 
It was I can't remember if the was the mystery booster version of Chromatic Lantern also a foil. Oh, I'm sure I don't know. I don't think it was. No, it was a non-foil. So there really are only three foil printings of this card. There's Guilds of Ravnica, uh, various promos, of course, and the uh, Return to Ravnica and the MPS. Yeah. Which just further cements my surprise that, like, the invention on this hasn't really moved that much. And it's not even like the foils on these other copies are that shallow. On the Return the Ravnica one, there's a pile at 13. I mean, I don't know what we're complaining about, though. The The ramp on this thing is from 90 to 200 in a hurry over the course of about 16 listings on TCG Player. Yeah. I Yeah. If somebody... if If there was a lot of pressure on this card then you would see it cleaned out and on all the inventions, right? Chromatic Lantern is sort of our, our our case study at the moment, but there's a lot of cards that this applies to. You have that 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 ramp up from 90 to 130 or 140 and, you know, 12-ish copies. But um, I feel like when I look at this in the graph, I'm not seeing increasing demand with the cheapest copies getting bought up, but rather almost a slipping of price. Well, I mean, I see four pro traders <laughs> in the list of 16 listings i see an ex pro mm. trader with two copies i see one of the major vendors in china uh with two copies and a couple of the lowest price copies are from stores with zero percent ratings and less than 30 sales so yeah. art you know <laughs> some of the copies at the 150 dollars level are from twitter personalities so it's not this is not super deep um you know, this is just people deciding to, you know, what they want their exit price to be. And I would, I mean, this is arguably a card that could just be on our, our target list. Because if people pick them up at 90 to 95 here and got the cheapest copies on TCG held for six months, I could easily see them being 140 to 150. Um, the, the only risk I would say is that Commander Legends, this is a good fit. Because it's like, tons of multi uh multicolor legends in a set and they have that's... to fix the mana in that set <laughs> and well, lantern does a pretty good pretty good job there well that tests your you know the hypothesis of whether or not you know a normal pack foil can te- you know fights for space with the inventions well no but there's going to be there'll be but, uh collector boosters for commander legends so it, yeah that's what so it, it would be, yeah, it would be a borderless foil, which would, which is a different story. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't have, I guess I don't have a, uh, a point to take away from all of this. Just that I do, my overall thought is I wonder if some of these inventions are going to end up languishing for a while, even, even longer than they have been and might even end up, um, having some, losing some steam to collector boosters, reprintings that show up before they manage to finally drain their own inventory. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm particularly sensitive to this because I have a handful floating around and I'm like, what should I be doing with these? Because I've been hanging on to them to try and do something with them. But it's like, eh, it might be time to get off this train. What What are the names of some of the other ones? Mm, I want to say I have a copy of almost all of them. There are a couple that I don't. Like I sold all my Feasts and Famines. I don't have any Chrome Moxes. I sold the last of the Mox Opals. But I've got a lot of the ones sort of in the middle chunk. 
I mean, just taking a look over the listings on TCG, you got seven listings for Mana Crypt, two for Soul Ring, eight for Mana Vault, four for Sword of Feast and Famine, 13, 35, 6, 6, 25, 24, 9, 12, 31. Like, everything's under 40 listings pretty much through the whole first page. Um, well, it's... But as far as inventions go, it's looked like this for a long time. It, it's been a slow drain since, say, a year and a half ago. From from the there was like two big wave spikes along the way, and then it's just been a you know here here and there it's been chipped away and chipped away. But even even you get down to things like Vidalcan Shackles and Champion's Helm, you're under ten listings. Yeah, some of these are more surprising than others. Like the six staff of Domin- domination is like really, or five scroll racks are su- more. You know, four feasts and famines. Those are kind of surprising to me more so than like you know twenty five fire and ice, twenty four aether vials. We also now have precedent now that we've seen what the expeditions look like for Zendikar Rising, for how these might be handled in the future. Zendikar Rising. A, they're calling them expeditions again, so we could see more inventions in the future. And B, the frame is reminiscent of the first, uh, you know, the stylings of the original expeditions, but it's not the same thing. It's cousin to it. And we're getting the fetch lands again. And then a bunch of other lands that we haven't seen before in an expedition frame. I suspect that's what happens with inventions down the road, too. Now, given that we've seen what these sets are for the year, the only one that jumps out at me as having, you know, a shot at being artifact-focused would be either the D&D set or the the School of Wizardry set, um, both of which could have, probably have strong equipment themes. But don't jump out at me as being particularly artifact-focused. So it's, it's entirely possible that, though we probably will see inventions again, that could be 2022. I don't disagree with that. I think you're right. You might see a couple of these get picked off singularly um, as opposed to a whole slate of them like you're seeing in Expeditions. But, uh, you know, again, it's been five years now. It's like, is, you know, is, is the extra year worth it to try and hang around? I, I got to say it's probably not. Well, I'm looking at something like, say, it, let, let's, say, let's say you got in on Champion's Helm at 20 bucks or whatever. Well, TCG Market says it's $36, but if you look at the near mint listings, there's one listing at $39, another at $39, another at $40, and then a $70, and that is it. So would I hold a champion's helm or try to ditch it at $35? I'd probably hold it. I mean, that's really drained. I don't, I, again, I don't disagree with you. I mean, you, it's very easy to look at the numbers on the graphs and be like, wow, there's only five scroll racks. That, well, scroll rack is a weird one. At like 160 or, you know, four champion's helms at 40 bucks or whatever. But I think when I bought them, I paid 35 or $40 and that was two years ago. So maybe the time is just about the calm, right? Maybe two, two years ago was the right buy-in for a bunch of these and we're just about hitting the turning point for them. But it seems like, I don't know. I've had enough cards <coughs> that I've owned in my life at this point where I always felt like it was just about to tip and then it just never tipped and sure. just didn't tip. And then I was just like, are you kidding me with this? And then maybe it did years later and maybe sometimes they got reprinted and they just kind of petered out. But I guess I, 
the, the numbers can look really good, but there's a, always a, a, a story behind the numbers. We don't necessarily have the story all the time. And I look at some of these and I wonder what that story is. Well, I mean, part of the narrative here is definitely how big of a deal is this card in EDH, at least in the current circumstances. So, for instance, Paradox Engine being banned there is why there's 45 listings for that one. Um, yeah. That that spiked real hard and made... I, I'm certain I was selling copies over $100 at one point, maybe even 150 um, and then Arcbound Ravager, of course, with no modern support, and it's unclear whether this would even be a deck in, in modern and paper uh, if, if we were playing it. There's 19 listings hovering around $50 to $70. I'd be less inclined to be holding on to Ravagers. But the stuff like Vidalcan Shackles, Champion's Helm, um, you know, some of the swords that were just reprinted in Double Masters that don't seem to be affected... Uh, Staff of Domination looks like it's poised. Um, Rings of Bright Hearth is due for a reprint that could easily show up in Commander Legends, but I wouldn't expect it to injure this version much. Yeah, it's it's a picky choosy kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a bunch of time on something. Uh, a fresh look at the inventions. Yeah, when we got plenty of other stuff to do. <laughs> Ugin the Ineffable, out of War of the Spark, foils from 12 to 20. Um, very popular in Commander. 13,000 EDH rec listings, which is quite good. Uh, and it's showing up in Modern Tron. Uh, and this is the slightly cheaper Ugin that does some cool stuff for you. Uh, so so good looking there for him. I, I like versions I, of this card. Well, there's a Japanese um, anime version. So foils of that having underpinnings in both EDH and modern is definitely a good thing for the people that snapped them up during the little bit of craze that kicked off at the early summer um, over the uh, anime walkers. And that, you know, this and also Finale of Devastation at War of the Spark, Foiled Mythic, going from 35 to 70, is a card we picked on here a ways back. Um, I think it was relatively close to when it was first revealed um, on a 6 to 12 month horizon on the basis that it was a 4 of and a bunch of modern decks and it's also a pretty big deal in EDH where it's registered in 17,000 decks so between the creature combo decks in modern and that commander play um, you know Finale and Ugin add a little bit of EV to those war boxes even if they're not Japanese and then the Japanese boxes all the better yeah no kidding so the, the next card on this list I didn't even know existed this is a blue enchantment called Efficient Construction, where when, apparently whenever you cast an artifact, you get a 1-1 Thopter. Uh, it's out of Ether Revolt. Foils went from 6 to 11. I have no idea why. It's in 5,000 EDH rec decks, and it's entirely possible that people are building Brea since it was just reprinted in Double Masters, but also entirely possible I'm missing a, a signal. Yeah, I don't have insight into this either. I remember the card, but like, why now? I, that I don't know. I mean, Brea gets to interact with Thopters, and I, I would play this in my Brea deck, especially if I was detuning it a bit. So uh, there, there is some relevance there. But if anybody has uh, thoughts on efficient construction, feel free to throw it out there if it was like uh, a Saffron build that I missed or something. Omnath Only if... Only if they're efficient thoughts. Yeah. Omnath, Locus of the Royal Foils from 10 to 20. I called this out to, as one of four uh, core 20 cards that looked like they were set to drain in the next little while. And uh, sure enough, here it has drained. Um, 
we just got the four mana Omnath revealed today that we'll talk about in a little bit, and uh, it dovetails well uh, with Locus of the Royal, so no huge surprise. Recurring Nightmare is one of the more powerful reserve list cards that has been targeted lately, going from 30 to 62. It's uh, banned in Commander for sure. I don't know that as a fact, but it just must be because the card is so busted. Uh, for people that weren't there back in the day, folks actually get used to get to run in standard Recurring Nightmare with Survival of the Fittest, and it was totally disgusting. I'm trying to copy-paste this text, and Google Sheets is giving me a hard time ever since I switched to Firefox. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. Like the copy-paste functionality just seems to have broken. There, there is definitely a anti-competitive suit of some sort down the road on yeah. that path. I, I've noted uh, G- Google uh, Sheets and Docs and that whole suite does not cooperate on Firefox. Uh, on uh, in any case, yes, Recurring Nightmare is banned. Emeria, the Sky Ruin out of Zendikar, original Zendikar, foils from 13 to 30. This is like Zen hype spillover. Um, could be one of the remaining utility lands that are unrevealed for the expeditions, though I somehow doubt it, uh, since they have a lot of other more juicy targets to fool around with. Zulaport Cutthroat foils out of M25 were getting clearly targeted up to a few weeks ago. Um and in theory have gone from something like $5 to $12. It's got two printings, one in BFC, one in M25. They are, turns out allies are not a big part of Zendikar 3, but rogues are, uh, and Zulaport Cutthroat is both. Remains to be seen whether this actually results in additional play for Cutthroat, or if that was just loose specking up front. Radiant Arc. I'm, I'm, I'm excited here because I, I picked Zulaport Cutthroat a while ago. Yep. For different reasons so, entirely, but but card, doesn't matter. It still counts. <laughs> card does plenty of work in uh, drain style decks that uh, revolve around popping creatures in and out of the yard. Uh, mm-hmm. Radiant Archangel, another reserve list targeting from five to twenty. Pretty loose, but eventually it'll be correct. And then I picked out one of the random seventh edition foils that are at the absolute bottom of the barrel that people have gone after in theory. Razorfoot Griffin foils went from a dollar to $25. That's just total nonsense. Um, you don't want to be caught holding foil Razorfoot Griffins. That's just silliness. <laughs> okay. For those of you who are specking on them. I mean, people people that are going deep on this 7th edition foil stuff, it'll pay off with enough of a horizon. Because you're not going to get 25 for it, but you might get 5 You know, it could um, we could get to the point where... The worst of the foil commons from seventh are still five to ten dollars. I am like mildly would be mildly concerned that the horizon for these cards being profitable enough to be worth selling uh, is at odds with uh, the timelines in the real world that make the type this type of crap unimportant. But that's that's true. I, I suppose that is true, and to some extent. Just checking what Card Kingdom will offer folks for a 7th edition foil. They'll give you a dollar in credit. So if you pick them up at a dollar, you're at least backed by credit. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it's still not something I would ever tell somebody to make a priority, but okay. Right. 
Moving on over to the Magic Online top movers, we got Soul Scar Mage that shows up in that blue red prowess deck um, uh, all over the place. Out of Amonkhet, going from 11 to 16, that's 45% gains. Chrome Mox, Masterpiece version, 3 to 4, 60 for about 53% gains. A lot of the Masterpieces I've noticed that are playable in Commander have been slowly seeing gains on Magic Online, likely due to the influx of Commander play. Uh, with people not being able to play in person as much. Submerge out of Nemesis uh, has been a surging in, in terms of its legacy use lately. Apparently it's quite good in the meta, um, going from $20 to $30 for 50% gains. The Rack out of Time Spiral from 273 to 454 I assume this has something to do with being removed from treasure chests or something. Um, I know the next one does. Hex Drinker out of MH1 was removed from treasure chest recently so the drop rate in the magic online system is just much much lower uh five to nine dollars for 78 percent gains and then archive trap apparently has been showing up in this weird sultai mill deck in modern and uh trap went from dollar 22 to 275 for buck 50 or 120 percent plus gains okay so you guys got some uh some mill action there too with this, uh, these spoilers. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, all right, so we'll move on to our cards to watch, things we think may show some gains in the usually the next year or so, although sometimes we pick shorter stuff and sometimes we're looking at longer horizons. I decided to take a look at what foil box toppers from Double Masters, which is already probably being forgotten in the rearview mirror after the deluge of magic news today. Um, we're looking scantily clad on TCG Player, as it were, in terms of the total number of copies posted. And the two mythics that caught my eye were Karn Liberated, whose super ugly foil box toppers are currently around 70 bucks. It's in 4,700 EDH rec decks, and it's a big modern card when paper ever returns, which could be 2021 or 2022, depending on who you talk to. And... Even if it's just EDH demand plus collector demand, I could see Karn easily getting to 100 to 110 inside a year just because it's a, a big name card. This is that Mark Tieden art, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that one's kind of odd looking. Uh, I'm glad to hear other people also thought it was odd looking. Um, but even still, a very good card. Obviously, a huge modern component. Uh, pretty powerful in Commander as well, and likely to be um, lowish supply with Double Masters releasing into this climate and this surge of information today. I think the idea of trying to keep your eye on Double Masters while everyone else is talking about everything else is probably a, a reasonable play here. It's, it's essentially the magic version of be greedy when others are fearful and so forth. My first pick here is just, a, I guess, a recap on something you picked five weeks ago. Um, I stumbled upon it while I was doing some research for today's episode, and then I saw that you had picked it, but I'm like, I'll still mention it. Be given today's news, which is Omnath, Locus of Rage, the foils out of battle for Zendikar, 
Um, you, you, you picked it back on in episode 230, so um, about five episodes ago, 18, and it's still just about $20 today, but definitely a little lower supply and a little higher price than it was five weeks ago. But things definitely look good for this card, even more so than they did five weeks ago. That new Omnath, I think, could be the most popular commander out of... Um, the new Zenicard set. Obviously, we don't have the full spoilers yet, but I do think the new Omnath looks very popular. Locus of Rage is going to be great in that deck. People are going to be... Every new Omnath player is going to be putting the old Omnath card in it. Um, so I like that card's outlook. Supply is real short, so you're pro you know, you've got probably a day or two to get $20 copies, I would guess, and then that ship is finally sailed. Yeah, and you know this is exactly the kind of thing that Ellie would try to call us on, so... May as well flag why we would bother mentioning something again if uh, the market had not already moved the needle on it. The reality is that there's just every reason to believe that the various Omnaths are all going to be on people's radar. An Omnath-themed deck is both A, powerful, like Jason has one with the the three-color Omnath and whooped my ass playing Commander (laughs) while you were out on Daddy Leave, um, playing on webcam, and... There's all sorts of Lands Matter stuff coming our way. I have a lot of trouble believing that the Lands Matters decks are not going to see some play this fall, so I have no problem flagging this for a second time as the copies start to dwindle out of the marketplace. Yeah. Yep. All right, what's your next pick? So the second of the Double Masters foil box toppers that look suspicious is Worm Coil Engine. Um, currently sitting around 32 bucks on TCG Player. I can see this going 30 to 50 pretty easily here in the next, say, six month, months or so. It's in 12,000 decks on EDH Rec. It's much lower TCG inventory than most of the other Mythic Foil box toppers, and cheaper too. And that is exactly the kind of combination you want to be looking for when you're trying to figure out which of those to pocket a few copies of. The nice thing about this is that if you're you know, running Brea or some other artifact-based commander, you probably have reason to be owning a copy or two of this anyway, and then hold on to them for a while and check back in if it's time to unload. The Wormquail engine is a annual favorite here. Excellent competitive chops, very popular in commander, uh, and definitely one of the cards in Double Masters that I kind of had in the back of my head as something to check in on down the road. So I think that this is a worthwhile consideration for sure all right how about your second pick um i was bouncing around the i keep wanting to say innistrad spoilers but they're not they're zendikar spoilers the zendikar spoilers and saw the new um cleric commander uh aura or the new commander legend new cleric legendary legendary cleric god um Aura, who is going to, ins- he, he looks good, so he's going to inspire some amount of play. Um, people are going to be tra- trying to put that deck together. I know, like, Edgewalkers, which is the cleric from Scorch, were basically sold out earlier. Um, so that, people are kind of banking on it. I don't love going super deep on any sort of tribal decks at this point. I think uh, EDH has sort of left that in the dust a little bit. Um, but I do think Athreos is going to be good in that deck. And everyone who builds that deck is probably going to like Athreos got a passage in there. 
um, and he just got a secret layer printing, which is the one we're talking about. So those secret layer copy foil copies are about $14 right now. Um, pack foils are 40 bucks for Athreos Got a Passage. So there's a big gulf there between those two printings and the secret layer copies are definitely better. So I think you can probably start sneak stealing these secret layer copies around 14 bucks, um, looking to get out at 25, hopefully in about six months when I would imagine Aura demand to be roughly at its peak. Um, so we're not looking, we're not trying to hit pack foils. I just think we can do a lot better than the 14 he's at right now. Just taking a look here to see what this ramp looks like. Yeah, with the secret layer just having come out and not a lot of pressure on it so far, I, I think there's like 40 something copy, 40 something vendors with I'm not sure how much copy inventory out there. It's, I mean, it's going to look, I feel like it's going to look, it's worse right now. One thing I like about it is it goes up 50 cents to a dollar every time somebody buys one or two copies. And the first wall is Brute Force Games at about 16 with eight copies. And then it doesn't, you don't have another sizable wall till Kitchen Table Games at $22 with 21 copies. I mean, people bought these for resale, so there are copies available on TCG, but they will drain out slowly over time. And Athreos is not the kind of card, given that it just got a reprint in a secret layer, that Wizards has any reason to be revisiting in a premium version anytime soon. Oh yeah, that's not on my uh, my list of things to be concerned about at all at this point. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I think this will be a longer hold. You've got three to six months here. I think it's going to take a. I would guess it's going to take more like six to fourteen, but it's going to get there because the ramp is a slow, steady build up into twenty-five plus territory. Yeah, it depends on the attraction that Aura gets. If he ends up being relatively popular, I think you could hit the six-month target, but I completely agree that if there's no take-up there, then you're in for a little longer hold. Yeah, I'm not convinced that the Clerics deck is super interesting, but I guess we'll see how people feel about it once they see what other pieces of the puzzle they have available in Zendikar Rising. Yeah, I, I don't know either, and like I said, I'm not super wild on tribal decks at this point, but he does look good at least. All right, so one of the thing, themes I, I noticed coming out of the massive uh, product uh, information dump that Wizards dropped on stream today was that vampires look like they're set to be a thing all year long. We've got a bunch of Zen vampires on Zendikar where they are one of the major races. There will probably be some smattering of uh, said same either on call time or in the wizarding, uh, the Hogwarts wizarding school. Uh, and if even if it skips both of those, they will definitely show up in the D&D set next summer. Uh, they could easily be in Modern Horizons 2 in the summer. I can't remember if there's relevant vampires in the time spiral block, but if there are, <laughs> that contributes. And then come next fall, a year from now, we have a double Innistrad set. And I'm actually curious whether the intent with that thing is, uh, well, I'll get into it in more detail after, but it's possible that they're doing a Legends of the Five Rings thing. Um, bottom line, there's going to be a, a whole set full of vampires because it's Innistrad vampires versus Innistrad werewolves, right? So I'm looking at uh, Edgar Markov, who is already the fourth most played commander in the last two years, according to EDH Rec, so one of the most popular commanders of all time, heading into a full year of vampires in a situation where they're pretty unlikely to reprint 
Markov. It looks like they already chose their like banner vampire for Commander Legends and chose Baron Sengir. So I'd be surprised if Markov got a reprint there, although it's not impossible. If he did, this would not turn out well for you. So you could wait and try to fade uh, the news on Commander Legends in November and then use that as your go signal since you still got some time, you know, nine months before Innistrad shows up. But Markov is currently around 22 bucks, and like Atraxa before him, I could easily see that going 22 to 40 if it fades the Commander Legends reprint. He was uh, surprisingly popular. I did not expect Edgar Markov to be as much of a hit as he was out of Commander 17, but he has consistently shown up in the top EDH rec lists over and over and over Um I, I have to hope that I'm not the only person who was surprised by that. But that does put him in a great position. And with as popular as he is, with a price of $22, that's a, that's a, it's a good place to be. And like you said, with the vampires that are clearly part of Zendikar and also have a big release next year, um, you know, the damn name of the set is Vampires. I think, uh, I think it's unlikely you're really going to have a miss here. It's just a question of, Will he get there before an Estrada, or do you have to wait that long? You know, we don't know, but uh, I think it's a good a good bet regardless. The thing the thing that's real nice about getting this huge Intel dump about all the the products for the next year, and I, and we haven't seen everything. There will still be some surprises along the way, and Markov could show up in a secret layer. You know, midway through twenty twenty one, leading up to Estrada, that could easily happen, but. When you, see, when you see all the places, it will definitely not show up. Like, you're not going to see it in Kyle time. It's not going to be in the Hogwarts set, etc. Uh, it's not going to be in D&D because those are, that's going to be stuff pulled out of the deep lore of the D&D universe. So Markov only really has a couple of obvious risks. And uh, that certainly helps when you're trying to put something on the shelf and let it cure for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like your your reprint risk there is, is secret layers, and that's probably the majority of it. Maybe the Commander Legends. Um, yeah, the uh, yeah, they'll do some sort of like f- horror film classic secret layer, and it'll, there'll be like a Frankenstein version of something and a Swamp Monster version of Yargle and all that that type of thing. Sure. Um, my last pick for the week uh, is Splendid Reclamation, a card that I'm positive someone has mentioned before, but with information anew um, that is worth talking about this again, uh, I saw some copies at $5, the foils of copies, foil copies at $5 earlier out of uh, Eldritch Moon, again with the new Omnath and Landfall clearly being a big sell. Uh, this card's going to be awesome in those strategies. If you cast this card with Omnath in play, you get all of your mana back and gain life and do something else. I don't know. It does a lot of things if you put a bunch of lands into play. Uh, it's real good. So uh, I think your foil copies at $5 here are basically a slam dunk to 10 maybe even 15 Yeah, I can see that given where we're headed with the lands matter stuff. I think I like this pick better as a pick it up now before it gets expensive for a little while in advance of some potential reprint a year or two down the road it's also not impossible that this would just show up in zendikar rising because it doesn't have any thematic element that prevents that uh yeah i mean there's that is a a a possibility i guess uh wasn't really on my radar um I, i think that wizards has generally shown they don't do 
too many reprints in standard sets these days. It feels like they use standard to push more new product and leave the all the ancillary products to the reprints. Um, but I, I, I don't disagree with you that it's certainly viable. Mm-hmm. All right. My uh, last vampire uh, of the week is Soren Imperious Bloodlord Foils. I'm sure that I have flagged this before, either in the Discord or on the cast. Um, and I know I mentioned it last week when I was uh, flagging Omnath, uh, lo- uh, the three-color Omnath uh, from Core 20. Soren is also from uh, Core 20, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, C20? Yeah. Should be M20 on here. Uh, foils are currently around 15 bucks. It's a four of in the Vampire Pioneer deck that uh, consistently top eights. Of course, nobody's playing Pioneer in paper right now, but it also has modest EDH demand to back it. And again, heading into a year full of vampires with basically no place to get reprinted. Edgar Markov is from 2017, so is about due for a reprint. But Soren, it was in theory in print up until just now. So I really don't see this seeing a reprint for two, three, four, five, six years plus. And as a result, eventually people will get back to paper. Vampires is getting a bunch of new tools this year. And so the Mono Black Vampires deck might be even better reinforced um, against uh, shifts in the meta as 2021 plays on. And it also has casual chops, right? Like this is just a really excellent vampire planeswalker with strong art. So I'm sure it just sells to casuals all the time at the store level. This is, uh, yeah, the, I mean, he looks really good. My, the, the card is is well positioned here. I like that it's coming out of M20. Um, that, you know, I feel like we're in a good time frame for that product. The, I, you know, I found myself along with, I think, some other people today looking at all the spoilers and going, are they just going to abandon Pioneer and go back to Modern? And I don't think that's the case, but... Pioneer's future seems a little iffier today than it did, I think, just a couple of weeks ago. I don't think that was ever the intention, but with COVID, you know, did it, did it kill Pioneer in the crib? Uh, I probably not, but it does seem like that might be might be less gas in that tank for the foreseeable future than we, we might have thought. Sure. All right, I got a I got a bonus pick here that I threw on the sheet as we were talking about the masterpiece cards. I can confirm this. Rings of Bright Hearth. Call this a Euro pick. Rings of Bright Hearth, MPS. Currently, the ramp on TCG is drained down to almost nothing. It's like 150 to 300 with the remaining copies posted. You can still get these for under 100 bucks in Europe. Again, the rings could show up in Commander Legends. I think it's a very possible uh, strong reprint there. And then you would get an extended art foil available in the collector boosters that are confirmed. But we just saw things like the Double Masters um, Foil Box Topper Mana Crypt basically have no impact whatsoever on the Masterpiece Invention version because, as we discussed on cast at the time, there just isn't enough inventory in the market for them to end up challenged. And what actually happens is that the guy who bought his masterpiece invention for one of his commander decks four years ago leaves it in that deck, buys a box of double masters VIP, pops a mana crypt, and throws that in one of his other decks. And then, you know, 
Ellie is taking a look at Rings of Bright Hearth for one of her decks, and she throws the card in there, um, the invention version in there, and never takes it out. And then they reprint it as a as a extended art foil, and the art's cool. So she grabs another copy and throws it into another deck. The Rings is not quite as ubiquitous as Mana Crypt or Soul Ring or whatever. You don't just throw it into any deck. You need a deck that cares about uh, activated abilities on creatures. But there really is quite a big arbitrage gap, and I've never been one to turn down masterpieces from Europe that are going to make me money. I mean, yeah, if the if the the situation is this, where you've got it looking real great on TCG Player, and you're buying is sixty dollars less in Europe, uh, that that's one of those picks. It's just like, yeah, the numbers work. Like you don't have to be. Just to be clever here, you just buy the card that's $60 less in one country and ship it over, and you're in good shape. And it's not the kind of situation where I would, like, advise people to buy up the ramp. Like, you don't want to buy the $100, then the $115, then the $130 in Europe and chase it. Let the market do the work. Just get one or two of the cheapest possible copies in and around 100 bucks, and then immediately put them up for sale in North America, undercut everybody by 5 bucks under the lowest price on TCG and or eBay, and roll from there. You're, yeah, you're going to make yeah. like a quick 20, 25 bucks after fees and roll. Yeah. And, you know, I agree that, you know, for every $10, it's less and less tempting. So don't get too far ahead of yourself. But the cheapest copies are definitely good looking. All right. So the Pro Trader member pick of the week, uh, or paper card to watch, uh, Lord Windgrace out of Commander 2018, another card that lands matters card that has only ever had a single printing this is the uh, land related jund commander planeswalker and currently sitting around at five bucks that seems dirt cheap there's gonna be lots of places to play that card um worth noting that it doesn't slot into the omnath bill updated omnath builds because it has black in it so that matters um but it could still be Uh, i get it (laughs) But it could still be buoyed by the Lands Matters themes of Zendikar Rising and also doesn't seem like the kind of thing that Wizards will have any reason to reprint anytime soon. So going from 5 to 15 seems pretty reasonable and Commander Legends is probably the only thing you've got to fade there. There are a couple, there's a one or two supply walls in there. I saw one guy with like 28 copies. but um, And I agree that having black and not fitting into the new Omnath is a bummer. Uh, but at the same time, five bucks is so cheap and he's been so popular that, you know, maybe your friend is building the new Omnath deck and you still want to play with landfall cards, but you can't build the same commander he did. Uh, Lord Windgrace is going to pop up on a lot of people's radars. And I think that's probably enough. So this seems pretty reasonable pretty reasonable i don't i don't love it love it uh but i think that if you're trying to capitalize on the landfall theme it's it's a valid option a lot of the pro trader recommendations this week were what i consider to be super loose tribal uh specs that came out of the uh party mechanic revealed today and just seemed to me like things you don't necessarily want to be chasing yeah i would definitely not advocate you know, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, I don't know, sometimes I wonder about who is still, it feels like everyone in the pro trade in the Discord should just know everything now. 
And then you tell me something like that. It's like, oh yeah, that's why we still are successful. Like people want to listen to us because people looked at that party mechanic and went, oh yeah, I should get in on this. Mm-mm-mm-mm. That is, I think, very, very clearly, at least at the outset, going to be essentially a limited only mechanic. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, that yeah. We need to see the rest of the set, but because... Okay, for instance, let me take, take a look at an example card. There's a card related to this mechanic that's like four white blue sorcery and you draw you gain three life and draw three cards if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, something like that. So it's definitely a limited card. But if you have the full party, which means you have to have four creatures in play, then you get to you get three life and three cards for one for white and a blue. And people are going to get caught up in that, like, whoa, that's so busted, so I'm just going to have four creatures in play all the time. But that is so yeah. win more for Constructed. Uh, yes, it's, not a sorcery, is, it's, a, it's not a sorcery, it's an instant, which is even more crazy if you actually have a Cleric, Rogue, Warrior, and Wizard in play. And it is worth noting that Mutavault can count for one of those things, and Changelings can count for one of those things. There's a creature in this set that can count for any of the four... So, I mean, they're putting the tools out there, but I would be pretty surprised if they pushed party hard enough for constructed. There, There is a caveat. They did tell us today that next summer we're getting a Dungeons & Dragons set. More or less guaranteed that party is going to get reinforced there. That's kind of the whole thing. <coughs> they, they may be setting up here for, you know, pushing this mechanic even harder nine months from now. Well, th- there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, that that there might be a rules thing that people missed here, um, because Saffron posted that black card that was four and a black. The demonic uh, tutor, the, the free, de- free casting card, coveted. Prize. Yeah, it was demonic. Coveted it was demonic prize. tutor, and then if the card cost, if you had a full party and the card cost four or less, you get to just put the card into play or cast it. So. And he posted that with Mutavault, and it's like, wow. So on turn two, you have Mutavault Swamp. You use the Mutavault to activate itself, have all four creature types, play this demonic tutor for one mana, go get a four drop, cast it. What if I go get Bloodbraid Elf, right? Like, just like, wow, this is wild. Except that they clarified that a creature can only count towards party yeah. once. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, so that means it does not matter how many creature type card types the card has, you only get to count it once, which means, like you were said, that every single party card requires four creatures in play to be maximized. And... Which is, like you said, it very much win more. Now, it is possible that Party was designed to be very good at two and get even better beyond that. Sure. Um, you know, the cards could have been costed in that way that it's like, hey, these are competitive if you have two creatures in play. And if you have four, it's just you're, you're on easy street. The thing is, is the cards aren't costed like that. They're costed to be a little ahead of curve with a full party. So it's very clearly not today going to be enough. And I really can't imagine what they could possibly print that would make me change my mind in this set, simply because you have to have four creatures in play to maximize this. And unless every single constructed grade party card has yet to be revealed, I don't think you're getting there. I, I agree that the Dungeons and Dragons set improves your outlook, 
But I still think that it, you're never fundamentally getting away from the problem that in order to maximize this, you have to have four creatures in play, which is just a tall order for any constructed, real competitive constructed format. It seems like the type of mechanic that's very good for their like casual kitchen table role-playing type crowd. Like give them that mechanic, let this be a thing that they can enjoy and just make every card cost two more mana than it has to. They can keep all those cards real cheap. They're easy to get a hold of. They're fun to play with. And nobody competitive is going to be interested in this mechanic. Coveted Prize is a good example of a card where, as you said, it might be sneaky good when you have two members of the party. So, for instance, if you go one blue for a fairy rogue and then two mana for a wizard, and you have options for both, then you have three mana for a demonic tutor with no downside. Yes, and well, yes, and I will point out that remember that it says you only get the cast for free if it's full party. Um, sure, but but with two creatures on the on the battlefield, it would cost three, and it would be a strictly better than Grim Tutor. Yes, and I agree that like maybe that card is semi playable. Like that maybe that's. And that's what I'm talking about, right? This Maybe this is good enough. I'm not the person to make that call. We know that four mana demonic tutors are unplayable in modern and pioneer. We know that two mana is like banned in legacy or like way too good. So there's somewhere the, the right answer somewhere in between. Is it this? I, I don't know. Maybe. But, you know, we just haven't seen it there. And there's always a mechanic that is essentially built for kitchen table or limited and not designed for competitive play and isn't likely to push prices. And I think party is exactly that mechanic. Especially given how it's got to be blue black, yeah, yeah, yeah. And th- there's massive flavor here, and I'm actually kind of surprised that they didn't sit on this until the D and D set. But I guess they figured like it. It's possible that this came up during planning for the the for Zendikar, and then they were like, "Oh, weren't we, weren't we also planning a D and D set? We're gonna have to port this over there. That's just too good." Or it could have been the reverse. Either way, it's a little weird that it's it's in the Zendikar set before the D&D set, but I'd be very surprised if they don't follow it up and, and reinforce it further. Looking at Coveted Prize a little closer, I would think that the immediate testing place to test that would be Blue-Black Fairies in Modern, where rogues and wizards aplenty exist, and you might want a Demonic Tutor and then cast something for free if you had Mutavolts as well. If you had double Mutavault and two creatures. Need, the cleric the cleric can be the Mutavault since you're unlikely to get that in blue-black. And I'm, and there's probably some black warriors that might work. But again, you're doing a lot of work. Like That synergy may just luckily exist. <laughs> or people just may bang their heads against the wall looking for it and never really get there. The hard part there is probably warrior. Cler- I mean, clerics are white and black. So it's not going to be a fairy. But you should be able to find black clerics pretty easily. Um, rogue, we know, and rogue and warrior, rogue and wizard. Wizards are obviously blue. Rogues are on all the fairies. But it, yeah, I, I don't know. Even a three mana demonic tutor in fairies, though, eh, or or some version of you know some blue black deck like that. I don't know. I, I I get it. I get the appeal. I don't. I would be surprised if it was good enough. It, it's an, it, the point you're making is that stuff like this is very often traps. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's let's just go up to the 50,000 foot level here. Wizards did their started previews for Zendikar Rising today and decided to just pile it on. 
in much the same way as they did last, I think it was last November when they basically unveiled the slate of products for 2020, they have now unveiled the majority of the products for 2021. <laughs> so starting today, we had K-Swiss Jace the Mind Sculptor, or I guess Jace Balaran inspired uh, running shoes that glow in the dark. Uh, they only made 300 pairs, which means they were basically written off as a marketing expense because the math for manufacturing these makes zero sense <laughs> when the total project value is $30,000. Um, they sold out in about six seconds. I, I had a size 10 in my cart and it disappeared immediately and then they never came back. Um, people, I know people had like taken bots from the, you know, shoe collectibles world and pointed them at this site and there's no way that Hasbro Pulse was ready for that <laughs> with only 300 pairs available I mean there's probably people out there who just pointed 300 bots at this thing yeah so the, these things are already going on eBay for like double to triple and some people were posting them at over a thousand dollars the, the, yeah, I mean, I think the people that we follow who are in the stinkers know that that's not going to happen, but that, um, what, what was the MSRP on these? I missed it. A hundred dollars. Okay. So I think people were saying, you know, our sneaker heads were saying it was probably going to be, you know, 300 ish, three to 400 seemed like a pretty reasonable place for them to land. Um, so, I mean, this is all just post-mortem because if, if you're hearing this now and you don't already own a pair, it's too late, but I, 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 <laughs> I, I primarily dislike these because this is such a, a disconnect between medium and subject. Like, Jace is not a chunky sneaker-wearing skater boy who listens to Newfound Glory and has a Justin Bieber haircut, <laughs> right, and, wear, has, and wears, like, clean DC shoes. Like, that's not that character. That's not who that character is. Like, that might be Tybalt. Right, like young Tibalt maybe. Like, but it just it just it just doesn't mesh there. Like Jace feels like he should have like wingtips or something right like that, you know? <laughs> so here's I, here's wrong character for the shoe. Here's what's gonna happen here. Now that they've got proof of concept under their belt, they're gonna take it back. They've already got a plan to roll out Liliana's and Karn's and whatever. And the next set will be a thousand units and they'll sell out again. Because now, uh, now, now they've built the hype to the point where they've got everybody on the hook. Whoa, my God, I tried to get those Jaces, but they sold it right away. Now they're going to announce the Liliana's a little ways down the road, and those will be a higher print run, and they will also sell it. Well, it'll be, they'll do uh, more, even color distribution, maybe. And then they won't do Karns yet. They'll wait until they have the color pie under their belt. And then they'll do like an Ugin or a Karn release. And they'll those will be ultra premium again. And like they'll make the shoes foil or some stupid shit. Well, the thing is, usually with projects <laughs> like this, you can't get too different in how you approach the shoes. Because you generally want to be using an existing shoe mold and then doing very subtle variations that don't cost a lot to retool for. So I would imagine this is the model we're stuck with. But they will do it in different colors with different, you know, the little metal symbol on the shoelaces will be a Liliana symbol instead of a Jace. They'll have cool video game art in the uh, the uh, insole, which, by the way, I think is the nicest detail on these shoes. The, the Jace insole is pretty nice, actually. 
Well, yeah, they could do... Oh, so even if you did it like that, where the actual design of the shoe doesn't change, and the only thing that's changing is the color. The colorway, similar, yeah. Similar to, like, AF1s or whatever. You could still do, you know, Jace's the blues, Liliana's the blacks, and so forth. And then you have five shoes of all of, you know, their various color palettes. And then they do the all, like, the pristine white Karn edition or something, because the white sneakers were, like, creams, you know? I don't know. It just seems like they could do something gimmicky for the for a colorless planeswalker after they've done the full set. I, I think the inter- most interesting part here is that they've done projects like this before. I know that I bought my father some magic shoes maybe ten years ago, and they were very like under the radar, barely noticed by the community. But the shoes as collectibles narrative has built up to the, the point now where presenting these as a limited release, 300 pairs only, really worked in their favor. Mm-hmm. I think if mm-hmm. it had been an unlimited release, this would have been like, eh, maybe I'll get some, maybe I won't. But the possibility to flip them turned this into an instant sellout. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with what you're saying. If it was really only 300 copies, then this is definitely a, like, we did it for the marketing. This is just a marketing expense because we're not actually making any money on these. But as a market, but as a marketing expense, it seemed really great because you're exactly right. Suddenly, this is a story, not only in the Magic community, but also in the sneaker community about how these, these limited edition Jaces sold out. But if they were on limited print run and they were sold at Kohl's, people wouldn't even know they were there. Like, we people just found out about all those Magic t-shirts that Kohl ha- Kohl's has, and it was, like, from the... That basically most likely got dumped there because of the GPs getting canceled and they had all this overstock inventory. So that's where somehow it ended up there. And like, it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of amusing, but like nobody cares all that much. So it, it seems to work very well on that front. Um, and I, I hate, I hate them personally, <laughs> but I, I hate, I, but like, I hate that shoe style. I've never cared for it. I was a little too old for that. So when those types of shoes were really popular was like, just as I had aged out of it and saw the kids who were like four years younger than me wearing them. And I was like, you guys are a bunch of losers. (laughs) So what we're seeing here is the power of brand crossovers and partnerships that Wizards had previously steered clear of in pursuit of building up their own pristine IP. And as of recently, seems to have realized they should really be mining much, much harder. So we saw the Godzilla crossovers. We, um, uh, they unle- revealed that they're, we're getting uh, the Walking Dead secret layer, which I assume is going to have Walking Dead inspired art on zombie cards. That's going to sell a ton of units. Ton. Yeah. Even now, like I yeah. so well. Hold on, yeah. so yeah. so hold on. Just just as a brief thought, yes, Chris Cooks rolled. Chris Cox rolled in a couple years ago, and I don't know what the timeline. I don't remember exactly when he was hired, and I don't know how all this looks. But I think he was over most of Magic when they brought him in, and uh, or was he just digital? I don't remember. But you're right. They and I, for I've liked Magic having been kind of been in its own bubble in terms of properties. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm bummed to see that they've opened the floodgates on this. Honestly, uh, I think it sort of cheapens the brand, but whatever we're here now. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like they've just gone whole hog because you've got Godzilla, you've got the transformer stuff. You've got, 
uh, Harry Potter. You got My Dungeons Little Pony. Dragons. My Little Pony. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting. So they well, I mean, really they're, they're not officially it. doing Harry Potter, but even when they're doing unofficial things, they're tapping into the zeitgeist, which is something I've accused them of for ages. I mean, Innistrad was which is Innistrad was always about mining the Twilight crowd, and this yeah. and this most recent announcement that we're getting Innistrad werewolves and Innistrad vampires is the straight up conflict of the later movies of of yeah, well yeah the thing is like i think innistrad you can you can you can look at the rise of twilight and look at the rise of and see innistrad and, and see and see that connection directly but it, but twilight was devoid of any um intellectual property to begin with it's not like the vampire <laughs> werewolves thing but like i'm not saying to be a jerk like to be Travis, a jerk. they they sparkle in yeah, the sunlight yeah yeah uh that that dichotomy that that space of culture and that that sort of horror adjacent realm already existed and sure, twi- true blood, etc yeah twilight leaned into it and magic was just part of the greater interest in that at the same time and it didn't feel at no point that that innistrad feel like it was borrowing from twilight it felt like both twilight and innistrad were we're taking a drink out of the same cup, same pot of water. Um, you know, we didn't sure. we didn't have a, a a Edward or Bella insert into Innistrad. Strixhaven, well, they, they 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 did mention that there's some kind of vampire werewolf wedding going on as pertains to these two sets. Uh, so today? I'm not like going to let I'm mean? not yeah yeah I'm not going to let them off the Twilight See, hook that well, easily. But this okay, I mean, I, it's hard to say, right? That's that's ridiculous, and I'm oh, you're, I'm only hearing this now on cast. At the same time, we are so far past Twilight that I would be surprised if their marketing department is like, you know, what IP we should try be trying to emulate and get people to buy cards based on Twilight, which ended seven years ago. Right or however long, like that's a that's a pretty big gap. Um, now, but I just went, but Strixhaven, Strixhaven is like, I all we have is the name and the like. This is <laughs> but the, this is the school, like the the premier school for wizards in it's like, Hogwarts. Yeah, and Dominaria. It's like okay, you've just made Harry Potter. Like you've you've yep. you finally cleared all of this with your copyright lawyers and decided that you can do this without getting sued for copyright infringement and i hate it and there's going to be a sorting hat card of some nature right sure. like there's going to be some sporting event well, that they play that's not uh well whatever it is where they the snitch and, and, and here's the question right are the showcases going to be officially harry potter oh because uh, they they pulled off Godzilla, it's not impossible anymore. The brand now, seems Harry Potter seems like it might be too big for that. Well, uh, it also seems like it might be too close. Like pulling in the Godzilla on the magic stuff doesn't really injure the Godzilla brand in any way because Godzilla is not trying to sell anything that's even remotely adjacent. There's no Godzilla card game or whatever, and Godzilla as a property is just more than happy to you know have licensing deals that further the brand, whereas. Harry Potter is very tightly controlled by Rowling and she has no reason to lend magic any shine, <laughs> especially if they're building a, if they had officially licensed Harry Potter for the set, that's a different story, but they didn't. So tis what it is. I, I, this is going to be amusing, but let's, let's, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back and just ex- explore what 2021 looks like because we're, we're talking out of order here the first set of 2021 in the winter is Kaldheim 
which we had heard rumors of months ago, and I had predicted it was going to be a snow set because there is a card from the Planescape? Plane Shift? The Which of those pl- two is a magic set? Plane sh- Shift. Planar, and plane- Planar Chaos is a set. There you plane, 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 ch- plane Chase is the product. Plane Chase is Thank the product. You. Plane Chase has a Kaldheim-situated card, and it shows a bunch of goblins on a mountaintop in a blizzard. Yeah. So once that was circulating, we were like, okay, Kaldheim is probably a, a snowy, Viking-y plane, and there, it's very likely that this is where we might get more snow stuff. Now, they revealed the logo for that today, and it looks like a blizzard in the background. So fairly safe to say there's going to be some snow stuff here, but maybe not. They could steer away from that mechanic and do all the viking stuff without actually explicitly having snow permanence and whatever. Um, but we'll see. I, I appreciate that they're releasing Kaldheim, the snow set, in the winter. Yep, that's that. cool. So then the other rumor we had heard recently was that Time Spiral Remastered was not going to just be an arena product. It was going to be a real product. And it turns out that that also was true. So Time Spiral Remastered is going to be a mix of cards from Time Spiral Block. And then they're going to take a bunch of cards uh, that have never been in old school magic frames. Things like Path to Exile. And they're going to put those in original magic frames and you're going to be able to get them in the Time Spiral Remastered uh, Time Shifted Sheet. And for those that weren't playing in those days, basically this was the first time that Wizards took a bunch of cards that were unrelated to, they were not playable in Standard, or were they playable in Standard? The, t- I feel the like Time Shifted cards? Yeah. Time Shifted cards were uh, were legal. Were legal, right? Yeah. But I, I, I have trouble imagining that these ones will be because it includes like Chalice of the Void in an original artifact frame, Path to Exile, Relentless Rats. Well, so I'm so I'm thinking that this set of slots is not going to be standard legal. Yeah, so but t- is going to be very sexy. The thing is, is times you can see it on your diagram here. Time spi- the new Time Spiral Remastered is not a standard set. It goes Kaldheim and then Strixhaven. Right there's your winner. And right, spread. so Time Spiral by. Is- Basically, they'll just have the the rare, the legality that they would have anyway. So, yes, yeah, Time Spiral yeah. Remastered is basically a draft set, which nobody will be able to draft. So, it's basically just a reprint set. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Whereas the initial Time Spiral was a standard set in the Future Sight block. So, we had talked ways back about how showcases would lead to using old borders, and here we have them. I, Strix- I, I just want to point out that this is my favorite of the announcements because I have been wishing they would do old border foils since uh, the original Ravnica. Maybe like (laughs) they released the modern border. They were cool for a little while. And I was like, I don't want the old ones back. And I, along with everyone else who's over the age of 25 has been waiting for this. So I am jazzed to see a bunch of cards. And I saw people who didn't quite understand. This is a bunch of cards in old border that have never been old border before. So that's the appeal. Somebody yeah. else asked, like, oh, what about mystery boosters? Like, they have old border cards. Yeah, but they're not new cards in old border. Correct. And so I would imagine there'll be some kind of premium product alongside that. Probably not VIPs, probably collector boosters, since yeah. we're co- confirmed that we're getting them for Commander Legends. So that means uh, that 
I guess you'll probably have a slot in there that gives you access to those old border foils in abundance. So that now see that's weird. Kind of a kind of a curious corner case because the entire point of these of Time Spiral Remastered is that you're getting old border treatments, and if you start messing around with the border, that's the, that is the the risen the threat of the set. Sure. So I, I'm not saying they won't do it, but it's just like that. This is the one set that it feels like you shouldn't do like all sorts of borderless stuff because it defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what they actually cough up in, in that regard. Yeah, and now and the next wait, and just as a last point, uh, Gavin did confirm that they're doing the shooting star on it for the foils. Ooh, yeah. So they blend in. That's nice. Um, Strixhaven School of Mages was brand new to me. Hadn't heard any rumors, anything remotely like a Harry Potter set, and that is apparently the spring set for next year. So probably April of twenty twenty one. We just made fun of it for basically being Harry Potter's. Hogwarts School of Wizards and Witchcraft or whatever it's called. That's almost certainly exactly what it's going to be. They said there's five schools of magic, like vying for competitively inside, which is, yeah, I mean, it's a straight off Hogwarts ripoff. Yeah. However, I'm much more excited about the other set I hadn't heard anything about, which is Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, given that I've been DMing for about two years now uh, in Dungeons and Dragons after having maybe played for a few weeks when I was a like very young teenager and then basically forgetting about it for many years. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, Dungeons and Dragons and have been uh, watching in earnest as it's become clear that the brand is making more and more money for wizards. And we started predicting that there would be a and d crossover months and months ago, but we hadn't actually heard anything about it. Super stoked to see that it's actually coming. Interested to see that it is a replacement entirely for the core set which I need to... Con- I, I haven't actually looked up the details, like whether they've released anything on this yet, whether they still intend for this, for Adventures in the Forgotten Realms to include a big pile of reprints, like a core set would, or whether it's just going to be a whole pile of new cards that are D&D themed and might include some reskins and renames of existing cards. Uh, yeah, it's... So I guess it's not, it's, it's not surprising that they're doing this, um, but it's it's kind of funny because everyone has been assuming they were going to do this for twenty years. This has been the this is like the like almost like the Oracle of Maldai reprint. Like, is is it this year? Is it this year? Is it this year? Like, you you guys got have had this one teed up for quite some time. <laughs> what was the holdup? Um, but yeah, you know this doesn't this doesn't hit the note for me. I never got in the D and D, but I can definitely appreciate the popularity of it now. And Wizards of the Coast is probably high-fiving themselves in the face with critical role and all those like D podcast type things haven't gotten very popular in the last year ish two years so this gets to come in while those are still relatively popular uh hopefully get some good some good bleed over for people um and i'm sure you're going to be seeing the people from critical role and those associated programs on paid advertisement streams playing magic gathering when this releases uh so this is this is a cool introduction right. of the product. And so we, but we already, at, at, as for the core set, uh, I, I I would guess that this is just a straight up replacement for it. Um, yeah, doesn't seem like there's any core set here. And, and if that's true, if there if there is no on ramping built into this product other than attracting, you know, D and D players instead of attracting noobs, it's a pretty clear signal to me that they've, as I've been you know pointing the finger for a while 
largely given up on noobs. Like, the entire pivot to focusing on premium product lines and the massive margins of things like VIP boosters, to my mind, has always been about them sitting down and saying, okay, the cost to acquire a new brand new user who has never heard about our game and get them into the fold is x but the cost to double the amount that a whale spends per year already engaged player with high degree of disposable income a large portion of which we are not yet capturing is y and y is a lot smaller than x so we're just going to go after y instead of x doesn't mean we're going to give up on new players. They still have a bevy of, of onboarding products. With, a, with every standard set, there's always some like ancillary products that are targeted at the newer players. They have challenge decks for standard where you can kind of get into F&M on a budget and then build up your deck from there. Like The, the, the onboarding on-ramps still exist into the game, but it still feels like they've realized that there's a lot more to be gained by getting deeper engagement from existing users and tapping into these overlapping Venn diagrams. Okay, so you love Godzilla. You love a specific set of anime artists uh, as pertains to the war Japanese boxes. You are super into D&D. Have you ever considered magic? There's this new D&D product that's going to have, and I guarantee this will happen, pretty much every iconic trope, monster, piece of equipment in D&D is going to show up in this set. You're going to have a beholder. You're going to have some of the huge dragon gods. You're going to have um, all the major uh, classes in D&D, like the 12 major classes represented. You're going to have some really good equipment that has very familiar names, like the bag of holding and whatever could get it. I think they've already printed that one recently, so it could get a reprint. And then a whole bunch of stuff from the monster manual. You're going to have a just a bevy of things that any D&D player is going to be like, this is like the coolest, one of the coolest collectibles I could own. And this is sweet. I can actually play it as a game. That's going to sell some, sell some product. Yes. For those who are unaware, um, the core sets back in like the 10th edition, 9th edition, 8th edition era were designed to essentially keep a suite of cards legal and standard they were every other year they weren't every year and the purpose of them was to just let's keep certain cards in standard that legal that we don't want to have to put anywhere else they uh, made the transition after that to try and treat the core set as an on-ramp for new players that was supposed to be like oh this is kind of where new players can get into the game. The rules are simpler. Everything is a little, like it's not themed quite as hard. So it's a little more accessible to someone unfamiliar with Magic's lore. And they were supposed to be kind of a stepping stone to the game. That apparently didn't work either. They haven't really been that for a while now. Um, but this this shows that they have just, essentially it feels like just given up on that. And maybe they're realizing like, hey, trying to get new players into the fold by giving them an easy to access like major core line product isn't isn't how people get into magic they get into magic because their buddy plays and their buddy drags them to the store and shoves cards into their hand so maybe we should just have little small stuff that's easy for you to buy and share with your friend but then use themes and interesting hooks to get new players into the fold stuff like it's harry potter except in magic right it's not simple it's not easy but you know what everyone who's going to play this game at this point already knows how to play games Right? They, they probably play video games. They might play other tabletop games. Like They're not dumb. They're, and they have someone who's showing them the ropes. 
and so they they need they need a theme hook not not a, a mechanic or a rules hook so you get to give them harry potter and dungeons and dragons to get these crossover crowds into the game and then they can be like oh i read on kotaku that like there's a harry potter set like don't you play this game and then bam that's how you're getting in the door and then you have like jump start and whatnot to, to actually get people um, to put the cards in their hands as a, as a form to play. So I definitely see this as them looking at the core set slot and going, you know what? M- the mechanics wasn't how we were getting new players in. Let's start picking themes that we think might pull in our our uh, our hobby-adjacent crowds. So this time mm-hmm. it's D&D, but like, I don't think you're going to see a Fortnite one, but you could see like a Pokemon-themed set mm-hmm. down the road. Well, not not that one, because it's a direct competitor owned by... Uh, another company that has every interest in outpacing magic well ditto ditto no Yu-Gi-Oh crossovers but well but when i say crossover i don't mean like i mean like the the way in the way the strixhaven is oh sure i mean arguably they kind of already do that like ikoria could be argued to to play into a monster hunter-esque theme um and i mean that was really had that vibe about it the i i think we're likely to see more explicit crossovers now like i've wanted a star wars one for ages and they don't own or control the star wars ip but they have all the toy licensing for it so it's not too far of a bridge for them to do a star wars magic set and boy oh boy would that sell product uh yeah that's for sure i was well, so I, I i agree like pokemon is a stretch but i was just giving you an idea like they could look at stuff that's you know similar might be might be the same type of players who would play both but just haven't gotten into magic um but you get the idea star wars would be uh, a real big get for them for sure i feel like the licensing rights would be too much i feel like magic has a lot more to gain from that than disney does T- tell you what you could see though rick and morty D D secret lair Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yes. Depending on who owns all these properties, because I'm not clear, but yeah. Well, well, Rick and Morty has already done a D&D themed uh, comic book series. Right, right. Well, I'm thinking more like, oh, yeah, I guess you already had the Rick and Morty and D&D crossover, so. Yep. So it's entirely possible that they could, because they control that relationship already, they could easily, and, and for sure, the nerds that work on Rick and Morty play magic, at least some of them. So you could see a secret, a Rick and Morty secret layer would be a like blockbuster. That would, wow, that would sell a lot of copies. I hate it. Yep. <laughs> I, I, sure. I, I really dislike the taking of these like pop culture icons and putting them on these cards. Do you but, like but the thing is that they, they have precedent on this from way before. Because that's all Monopoly is these days. In fact, that's all most of the ancient board game properties are these days. Like Risk, throw whatever Mech Warrior yeah, over like top Fortnite of that. Risk and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And and Monopoly, Pokemon, and whatever the so <laughs> yeah, but those are so different. Now, now that they've seen that this stuff works, we're gonna just keep getting more of it, not less of it. Uh, I agree, and it's a shame. And but I, you know, I think that it, it's it's not unfair to argue that you know Monopoly and Risk and those things are very different than Magic is because they didn't really have their own culture identity. But uh, the the more the more of this crossover you see, the less I like it. Feels way too. I don't know. I really appreciated that Magic 
at least, you know, very early on had this very like ancient spell book pages in a tome. You felt like you were holding a, some arcane artifact in your hand when you had the cards in your hand. And it like, it had the, it was dripping in character that only got better when you would like look at old cards and now it's so slick and so themed and modernized. It's just like, I don't know. I feel like it lost so much of its character and these tie-ins do not help. You're going to call me an old man, but like, I don't know. I, I appreciated that the characters, that the, the, the character of the game, the, the medium was its own character essentially. And you've kind of erased that. I wonder how much of that is from the shitty art and washed out graphics of the early days of magic. Cause I, I sort of, you gave me a glimmer of nostalgia there where I sort of plugged in for a second to what it was like to open my first couple of packs of revised and that we are certainly many miles from, from that specific feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the premium product of 2021 is revealed to be modern horizons Two. This one I find a little surprising. I talked a lot of trash last year October, November, December of 2019 about how the reveal of Pioneer signaled that Wizards was not serious about Modern as much anymore and that there would be a slow, steady transition from Pioneer to Modern as the torch was passed as it had been from Legacy to Modern. And as you mentioned earlier, COVID really kicked Pioneer in the nuts before it could even really get rolling. There was only maybe five or six major Pioneer tournaments before in paper um, before COVID kicked in. And since that point, Pioneer has had a lot of trouble, uh, especially when there was three major combo decks in the format, uh, pulling together consistent, uh, expansive demand on Magic Online. And of course, on Magic Arena, they don't can't support the format. So that hasn't helped. And as a result, I wonder whether Modern Horizons 2 was originally planned to be something called something else that would be more inclusive of Pioneer and then was pivoted during COVID. Like, this probably would have been put to bed in the spring, so they may not have had enough time. And it may always have been the case that Modern Horizons 1 and 2 were planned as evidenced by the fact that Modern Horizons was set symbol was MH1. So at the time we were like, okay, so when's 2 dropping? And, uh, and we originally said like this could happen within 6 to 12 months. Turns out it's not 6 to 12, it's 24, but it, it does very much look like the execution of a pre-existing game plan. Yeah, I, I think that looking at this and and thinking that it's a late in the game switch because of COVID messing up Pioneer is I mean, it's a little tinfoil for me. Realistically, the timelines we're talking about here are not that long on a product perspective. Um, you know, they have their big meetings where they get together and talk about the future of magic every seven years. Like it's not, it's not like they're doing it every year. Their their retreat there, I think it was something like that. It's 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 a long time frame. So you know they they probably envisioned having modern run alongside Pioneer for for years. I mean, look, Legacy has continued to exist even in spite of how much effort everyone puts into you know Wizards puts into dumpstering that format. So they knew they could get modern to let drag on for a long time, even if um, Pioneer was successful. So 
I see this as them going, well, we've got Pioneer. We're going to run these concurrently for like six or eight years, maybe six years. We're going, or four years, whatever. We're going to just make Modern Horizon sets, which don't cost us a lot of effort, but get to make us a bunch of money. Um, in the meantime, while Pioneer kind of builds its player base, builds its, you know, builds as a format, and then eventually Modern Horizons in the dust. So I think that just seems more reasonable, but I guess I'm just, I'm just Occam's razoring it. The more I think about it, the more I, I think it is tinfoil hat, because again, MH, like Modern Horizons was MH1. We were calling for an MH2 and, and wondering about it shortly thereafter. This can and the pioneer decision may well have been made long after they had already committed to that midterm game plan. It's entirely possible there will be a pioneer focused product, but that could, you know, the earliest slate for that being in 2022 is not unusual at all. Because before they committed to it, they would want to see how the format played out. And now that COVID has done what it's done, they have every reason to back off that until that they can prove that the demand is there to support that format in that way. And in the meantime, you know, no one can really play modern either, <laughs> but it had a much bigger entrenched base and there's way more millions of dollars of worth of modern decks in people's hands. And modern has been popular, probably the most popular uh, constructed format on Magic Online since COVID began. So that there's, you know, ample evidence that the player base for modern is committed to the process. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't be surprised now if... I, I assume Modern Horizons 2 was always planned and possibly Modern Horizons 3. I wouldn't be su- surprised if they look at this and go, okay, we now have to extend our modern timeline by two to four years because of COVID messing with, with um, Pioneer or if they might just decide to dumpster Pioneer entirely and relaunch it in a year as a new format, essentially because of what happened with COVID. And well, they do, they do have historic that they've been building through on arena that I, we had spoken much earlier in 20, 2020 about how historic and pioneer would converge at some point and how pioneer and modern would converge at some point. That was one of my reasons to believe that modern would be left by the wayside because when they were printing so many high powered cards into both formats, the decks were, were going to get tighter and tighter with some exceptions. For instance, Tron decks, you know, never being, never existing in Pioneer, but always being, you know, top eight pretender, contenders in uh, Modern. Um, the, I guess we should point out one of the biggest reveals about Modern Horizons 2. They announced that the, not only are the enemy fetches getting another reprint there, but they're being reprinted at Rare, not Mythic, which was one of my fears. Um, so that is going to be a very popular set <laughs> as a result. I would imagine they may skip the collector boosters and go straight to VIPs for that one. Um, whatever they do, it means that there are multiple versions of premium fetches this year. In fact, three total within about 14 months or so, because we had ultimate secret layers the $250 uh, enemy fetch sets with unique art that released in June. We have just recently gotten confirmation that we have uh, expeditions returning in Zendikar Rising, 
And the way to get access to them is that there are three products that can contain them. They are not being reintroduced into standard. They are um, box toppers for the set booster boxes and draft booster boxes and in non-foil. And there are 30 possible lands, including all 10 fetches, enemy and allied. And the BBZ lands were also confirmed, uh, reprinted, that were part of the original expeditions. And then there are the five battle bond lands being reprinted as expeditions. And then the other five uh, lands from that cycle are going to be printed in Commander Legends. So all 10 of them will be appearing within a three-month period. And then I... Sounds like the other 10 of the expeditions from Expeditions 2 are going to be utility lands. So stuff like Wasteland, um, Ancient Tomb, Valakut, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can you also get two of the Expeditions non-foil in every Zendikar Rising Collector Booster box. That's the 12-pack boxes that tend to go for somewhere in and about $200 at market minimums and with in Ikoria's case have gotten as high as 240 or 250 um, on scarcity. There seems to be a lot of bullish sentiment amongst vendors this week that we've been negotiating with for group buys that they are hesitant to give us our usual deals under 200 because of the presence of these fetches, especially given that the collector boosters I, I was thinking there was going to be like a 1 in 10 chance of getting a foil fetch in those things, but apparently it's 2 per box on average. Wait, so if, what are the 2 per box here? So you get 2 non-foil uh, box toppers in the collector boosters. It sounds like it might be in its own little 2-card booster pack. So you get the 12 packs and this 2-card booster pack. And then in the 12 boosters, there's a slot that can include a foil uh, expedition. And it's the only place you can get the foil expeditions. You can't get those in the other booster boxes or set booster boxes. So foil Scalding Tarn Expedition 2, for instance, has a... I guess the fetches are a third of all of them, so if you're getting two per collector booster box off the top, you have a one in three chance of pulling a foil fetch. One and three in each slot, so twice. So you have a, you're going to have, yeah, roughly a 33% chance of pulling a foil fetch per collector booster box. Hmm. That's not good. Well, it's not good for their price in comparison to expeditions. Keep in mind that foil expeditions, skeleton turns, and polluted deltas were pushing 400 when they first released. Um, I would imagine people will be trying to get. To 150 to 200 for these on pre-order and i think that selling pre-orders <laughs> rather than buying them is going to be the thing here because they have to collapse with the amount of product that's going to be opened here and i'm also hearing through the grapevine that uh, collector boosters are the highest for zendikar rising are the highest print run of any collector booster ever mm-hmm. including theros which seemed to be overproduced at the time because they have all these fetches in them and they know people are going to want them. It's yeah. going to make it's going to make the standard cards given that no one can play any standard anyway incredibly cheap. Oh. There are going to be some dirt cheap rares and mythics out of this set 
similar to what we've seen with you know Ikoria and and Core, um, but even more so because the 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 expeditions are going to push the price down hard on those things. And then the other thing to keep in mind is <clears throat> there are five dual lands in the set in Zendikar Rising that are in standard that are modal duels oh. that have one color on one side and another color on the other that are not part of the 30 expeditions. So they're going to have foil extended art versions, okay. which will be even more duels that you can open in the collector booster boxes. Can I tell you that while you were talking about all of this, uh, somebody posted a page from Rosewater's Tumblr that the official, like the quote unquote code names for these dual flip face lands are Tango Lands. Which makes me so angry. Are what lands? Tango lands. No, the Tango lands are the ones from BBZ. No, that's what we called them. Because that was the name that made sense. Because it took two. But according to Rosewater, we went through a couple nicknames. But the final one was Tango lands. Since it takes you what? playing... T- since it takes you playing two of them to give you access to both colors. It takes two to oh, Tango. Oh, wow. It's garbage. And I hate him. And I hate everyone at Wizards. <laughs> And I well, hate Star be, City. And I hate Star City be for not calling the BFZ lands Tango lands. That's just going to be confusing. Yeah. The but the point the point remains that there is thirty five mostly good lands. There's like four stinkers probably. The the Tango lands in our parlor in our vernacular that aren't really played because I guess just the black red one is played in modern uh, for the most part. The other ones are. Not much played. But that still means that out of 35 possibles, 31 of them are highly desirable. That should really repress the price of most of the other cards in these uh, collector boosters. Because we haven't even got into whatever the good rares and mythics in the set are yet. That are going to have foil extended arts. Like the Thassa's Oracles, Underworld Breaches, Uros, and Croxes of the world. Are not even part of this conversation yet in this analysis. So... There's got to be a few of those in here, given how Wizards has been, uh, you know, setting the power level tone for the last year. Uh, bottom line is this. We're we're snapping off, you know, 200 to $210 collector booster boxes for Zendikar Rising fairly confidently, where we would normally be looking to get them for 190 to 200 mm. It's... There's a yeah okay so there's a lot to unpack here. What I'm curious about, uh, and I don't like my odds here, is the impact this is going to have on the old expeditions, because those are still have been languishing a little bit as well as the inventions, and the return of these is doesn't bode well for those, or I don't think or inventions or any or any premium card like this regardless. So you know. I have some bloodstained mires and windswept teas hanging around because it never quite got high enough to make to warrant really shipping them off. But now it's like, damn, I guess I really should get around to kicking these out the door because they're certainly not going to be worth much more than they were, especially with seemingly seemingly how plentiful like non foil, you know, the non foil showcase fetches are going to be. Like, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to get cool looking fetches for a lot cheaper than you know the hundred and change that they are today it's kind of weird because 
not that you know wizard said you know we're, we're offering the non-foil expeditions because people want them for their competitive decks okay fine but the thing is that the thing that makes those premium is that they're foiled the non-foil versions of the expeditions with the relatively subtle framing that they revealed today doesn't really ring my bell i wouldn't be dying to put those into my deck any more than you know regular fetches if i if i was going to yeah, I don't think I would feel compelled. I feel like they're in that that same kind of awkward middle spot as the you know non-foil extended arts. But you I, know, I, the thing the thing here is people are going to end up with a pile of them just by opening a bunch of this product. Yeah. <laughs> so we're all going to make use of them, and no one's going to complain about it. Yeah. And there should be a lot of downward pressure on the fetches that should finally shut Prof and his cronies up. Given that there is the ultimate secret layers, tens of thousands of units, you're getting tons and tons of fetches, you know, one per box out of the regular boxes and four per box out of the collector boosters, including two foils out of this product. And then less than a year later, they've already assured us that they're printing the five enemy fetches at rare. So by next fall, Misty Rainforest should be real cheap. Scalding Tarn should be real cheap. Because there'll be three different versions skulking around out there, clogging up the inventory. They clearly, they definitely won't stop complaining. And if it's not about fetches, they'll just move to something else. Uh, but, you know, am I? would I be dying to get the non-foil showcase fetches? No. But I already own all the fetches, so like I'm not going through all that nonsense. But if you were in the market to obtain them, I think they are better looking and more interesting than the normal fetches. And unless there's a significant price premium on it, right? If you're if it's at like nine dollars for you know whatever a windswept heath or fourteen for the showcase one. Like whatever, sure, I'll buy those. Those are slightly cooler and not that much more expensive. And I like they're they're not as cool as if I had like the foil ones, whatever. But they're cool enough that I don't feel like I also have to go buy foil ones. Sure, I mean the the argument they can make here is that this is still not a meaningful reprint of the basic version, and people have to wait for that until next summer. And even when that comes around, it's not going to be in four dollar packs. It's going to be in seven dollar packs. Where, where, where? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you're never gonna get away from people being frustrated about the price of cards, uh, fairly or not. Uh, and fair enough. But this is about as good as it's gonna get. Like this is this is the most they are going to do on this topic. <laughs> so just to cap things off, let's let's have a little talk about the Zendikar Rising Collector Booster formulation. This one looks pretty straightforward. Um, there's a foil double-sided token. That's par for the course. Foil full art basic land. These are increasingly commodified to the point where I do not consider them investments. Five foil standard frame commons. Two foil standard frame uncommons. Two non-foil showcase commons or uncommons. One, uh, two, one foil showcase common or uncommon. Um, this is the same kind of stuff that was, you know, most of the mutate creatures in Ikoria. Um, one non-foil extended art, rare or mythic. One non-foil borderless or showcase rare or mythic. 
one foil standard frame rare or mythic, one foil alternate frame rare or mythic that can be an expedition, showcase, borderless, or extended art. So this is actually a ratchet back versus what they gave us in Core 21. Core 21 had, uh, you know, in the early collector boosters, we were getting roughly three to four foil extended arts per box out of the 12 packs. And then by the time we got to Core 21, we were getting something like seven to eight. And some packs had two. And it felt like they were pushing that direction. But it seems like here they recognized the value of the expeditions and they hung more of their hat on that and have simplified the rest of the formula. There's not, you know, that you're going to get a, in a booster, you're going to get a non-foil extended art every time, which is par for the course. But a foil extended art, well, I guess we don't know for sure in that foil alternate frame rare or mythic slot, how many extended arts versus borderless planeswalkers versus showcase versus expedition we're going to get. That remains to be seen. So we don't actually have a full, full picture on that. It, it could be that they have not walked it back. I'll tell you this much. If they keep it at six or seven per box, plus you're getting some borderless planeswalkers, plus you're getting uh, <laughs> showcase uh, Lotus Cobras and you're getting two foil expeditions. <laughs> the the rares and mythics are just going to be crushed. Yeah, people are forgot what it's like to have these cards in your you know expedi- or expeditions in your standard set and what it means for your card prices, and they're going to find out again. Well, I mean, the thing is, they were going to get crushed anyway because nobody can play standard. But yeah. now they're from every angle being suppressed so there should be some really good deals on some stuff when we hit peak supply i certainly won't be rushing in to grab random rares and mythics and non-foil on this set there'll be zero reason to do so and i also don't think i'll be chasing um foil fetches like foil uh, expeditions will not be specs here there'll be cards you want to crack within four days of like you know seven to 14 days of release and sell yeah, I, I all of this, I you know I, I'm, I haven't thought too much about it, but I am kind of operating on the assumption that I'm not interested in buying much from this product at the moment, without having done extensive research on what specifically those items should be. Now it's different if you're getting you know the VIP boosters or collectors booster boxes at you know all basically distributor costs like that's fine, but like if we're talking about specking. It's still, I'm still hesitant. Also, this is a, a twice burn situation because I picked up a bunch of expeditions for dirt cheap. Um, I actually had a, a a trick there I was particularly pleased about at the time as I bought a bunch of SP foil expeditions um, for obviously less than the near mint and then shipped them all off to Wizards for replacements when they were just doing straight one for one swaps. So I paid SP prices and got near mint copies and still ended up sitting on them because there just wasn't enough movement. So now I'm like really reluctant to be getting too deep on any of this stuff this time around. Yeah. And the thing here is that if you told me that the Zendikar Rising Collector Booster print run was 40% more than say Core 21, 
I would still think that those collector boosters were headed to 250 to 260 within six months. Really? There was a rumor going around that they were three times the print run, which I think is erroneous because there was a major distributor that lost access to Wizards, and so their allocations needed to be redistributed through other distributors. So some stores would have been offered allocations twice. But I've also heard rumor that people are saying, other places are saying that they're that Zendikar Rising allocations for Wave 1 are looking limited across the board, that for regular boosters, set boosters, and collector boosters, it might be hard to get their hands on product. So there's some mixed information in the market right now. So far, I'm proceeding on the assumption that maybe the print run is up 50%, and that will battle against the rising price of these collector boosters. But if the formulation... uh, turns out to be especially generous you know if it's if that foil alternate frame slot proves out to be a gold mine then these could easily meet or exceed the price of icoria collector boosters which have hovered in that like mid 200 zone yeah and and in which case you know the people the pro traders that are picking up cases at like basically 1200 us this week could be looking to flip them at 1500 heading into Christmas and just get a nice clean flip without having to crack anything and sell any singles. I, I suppose, yeah, that that could work out that way. I mean, I haven't kept a nearly as tight of tabs on the collector booster box prices as you guys have, especially if they, lately. If they go the other route and they, they're truly, it's just an immense amount of this product, then those non-foil fetches are going to get really cheap. Uh huh. Yeah. It does seem like your every single non-foil, non-special card in Zenicar is going to be worth nothing. So one final product to go over. There's a secret layer that's apparently coming out in two days. That's called called Yargle Day or something. Yeah. Based on the Yargle character that showed up in Dominaria. I didn't uh, even really know this was a meme. Yeah, like I vaguely I, knew it was, but I didn't realize it was like that big. I definitely didn't know it was like that anybody considered it on this level. So basically, you're just getting a bunch five cards that see a reasonable amount of play, where their art has been changed to include Yargle. So you got Swords to Plowshares, Opt, Fatal Push, Explore, and Anger of the Gods. This one is interesting because there's a lot of good cards here, but I don't think people are going to feel compelled to own it. So this might just do okay. And the funny thing about the secret layers is when they just do okay, but there is in fact like ongoing latent demand for the cards in question, they tend to appreciate. And we we also don't know if Wizards has moved on from including stained glass planeswalkers in secret layers yet, because there's been no official announcement about that. And there hasn't been a secret layer yet that didn't include them. So we don't know, you know, we're going to be playing this guessing game for a while with secret layers until they finally flip the switch and it becomes apparent, you know, what is going to be included here. And once they do get rid of the stained glass planeswalkers, are they replacing them with non-foil expeditions? Are they replacing them with something nobody's thought of yet? The uh, the uh, Yargle question is is fascinating. Because you're exactly right, and I had the same thought, is the secret layers seem to be at their best when nobody 
seems to care at first, or at least the target audience for the product isn't the type that's dialed in to buy the secret layer on the day that it's offered, which makes sense for like the cat one, right? Because like the type of person who's super into the cats is probably a fairly casual player, not necessarily, you know, plugged in enough to know the exact day to buy it as opposed to, I don't know, like any of the other secret layers, like the, the dredge one that had life from the loam is definitely a different audience of player. Is, is the people who are going to find the Yargle cards amusing going to be online when on September 3rd to buy them? And are the people who are around on September 3rd going to care? And it's, it's tempting. Like every time I see a secret layer that I'm like, this looks stupid, who wants it? That's when I'm like, oh, maybe that's one I should buy then because everyone else is going to think it's stupid and not buy it. Nobody will buy it. And then there won't be any of these. And someone's going to want to play sort of Yargle Swords plowshares and realize there's only four of them on the market. Yeah, that's pretty much the right summary. It's 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 a it's a it's a tricky tightrope to walk, and I I could see buying one or two yargles and seeing how it goes. So, just as an overview for Zenicar Rising, it doesn't feel like they're leading with their top stuff so far. We've got three planeswalkers, and only one of them really excites me. So I'll talk about that one, and then maybe we can wrap up and tackle the rest next week. Nissa of Shadowed Bows is two black green for loyalty. She has a static landfall ability. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, put a loyalty counter on Nissa of Shadowed Bows. So in EDH, that means anything that, you know, a fetch land where you play the fetch, then crack it, then put another land into play is going to put two loyalty counters on Nissa right away. Her plus one untaps target land. Uh, it becomes a 3-3 elemental with haste and menace until end of turn. So nice evasive ability there. And then the minus five, you, you may put a creature card with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of lands you control onto the battlefield from your hand or graveyard with two plus one plus one counters on it. So it's got a reanimation thing. And in decks that can really ramp hard, Nissa could be putting in a pretty gigantic creature in not too not too far in the distant future in the game, you know, turns four, five, six in commander. She's, she's something I, I, I think I'm slightly softer on her than everyone else was. Um, people were talking about her in a ramp strategy. She's not, she doesn't really ramp you herself, but she is going to do a pretty decent job of giving you a little bit of extra mana every turn, g giving you one extra mana to use every turn with her plus one. That's occasionally going to give you a gross creature out of the graveyard that you're probably only going to, I want to say you're only going to pull that off roughly once per Nissa, but maybe you can do it twice given that you're getting counters. You know, if you're plus one in her and playing a land, if you, if you plus one her and get double landfall trigger two turns in a row, that is a six loyalty. That's a lot. Um, I don't know. I, I don't feel, I guess I should, this is where I should say I, I'm probably not, <laughs> probably not the person to be giving you advice on whether or not a Planeswalker is standard playable, but she's, she certainly looks like she could be quite pushed. I mean, I don't care if she's standard playable. I'm saying she's commander playable. No. In commander, you can ramp so hard so easily. There are so many ways to be putting multiple lands into play. You're running Crucible Worlds. You've got... You've got get raw going on. Like this is just going to be nasty. Yeah, I I think. You know how good are the best planeswalkers in commander? She's certainly solid. 
probably like better in, than a lot. In Atraxa Canters, one of the more popular decks, one one that I own and run, like slotting this in for sure, because she puts counters on. So when when the counters come in, they're probably doubled by hardened scales or doubling season or whatever. And when she gets the loyalty counter off her landfall ability, doubling season's doubling that too. So a fetch would put her to eight loyalty right away. There's it's pretty nasty. You've you have said I'm gonna slot this into Atraxa so many times on this cast that you must have replaced the entire deck by now. I, I don't think that's actually true. I th- I think I've said that maybe five, six, seven times. And those are the cards that did indeed slot into Atraxa from those sets. The the reality is that there because counters themes and planeswalkers benefiting from additional loyalty are persistent and you know consistently presented in in magic sets as they uh, appear one after the other in a constant stream a commander like atraxa with open-ended synergies on on those themes is just going to continuously get better and better over time um i don't know nissa is not jace the mind sculptor but of the three planeswalkers this is the one that jumps out at me as being the most abusable in commander and commander is definitely where we're at right now yeah, I'm, so I'm looking at the most popular Planeswalkers in the last month on EDA track. The most popular is Narset, who is in a total of 22,000 decks. Narset Parter Avails, which is the one that says your opponents can't draw more than one card each turn, which is pretty significant. Ashiok yep. is second. Oko comes in at third over the last month. He's down to 5,000 decks. Now, he has two colors. Teferi clocks in at 7,000. Time Raveler, but his... Static ability is also very good. Jace Wielder of Mysteries, which is a Lab Maniac, is 17,000. I don't know. I guess, you know, these are all very good because essentially of their static text ability, which is good on its own, as opposed to like Nissa's, which which isn't good on its surface. Right? It just feeds an ability. So the first Planeswalker who's doesn't fit that is tamio field researcher but she's three colors i don't know i guess i'm wondering if how good planeswalkers and commander ever really managed to be if if they don't have a ultra relevant static text i don't know let let me let me be clear i'm not claiming nissa is a spec i'm just saying the card is going to see a lot of play in commander the the nissa shadow bows uh borderless showcase version art is fantastic and yeah that's cool I, I could see it ending up on our list like six to 12 months out for another six to 18 month hold kind of thing um but is, isn't a card that jumps out at me as a wow we got to buy a pile of these a brick of these at the at their lows planeswalkers very rarely seem to do anything along those lines these days and I, I think that the three planeswalkers in Zendikar Rising look very much like the three planeswalkers in uh, Ikoria, just like medium good kind of things that people will play with, but will never be really, really big deals. Mm-hmm. Hey, remember when there were like nine copies of Teferi? Like, was it Master Time? Is that the one that has like nine copies? Yeah, that's, that has nine versions, yep. Yeah. I was just looking at the EDA Trek Planeswalker page and I saw that. I'm like, oh yeah, there are like a zillion copies of this card. Wasn't that like two months ago? How how time flies. (laughs) 
I'm surprised you were you were even paying attention during that that era when I was cracking all the core collector boosters and pulling foil showcase Teferi after Teferi. I think we talked about it with Jason when we did the core 21 review and I was just as flabbergasted then. Yeah. It's um, ridiculous. Oh, it looks like strip mine is in too. Yeah, that was rumored. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Oh, so I get that should be the final point. Actually, this products slate this fall commander legends and Zendikar was heavily, heavily spoiled. And a lot of that went largely under the radar never really filtered out to the public never really filtered to us until very late in the game very obvious to me that rumors were flying on this set like six months ago Mm -hmm. people were going after the partners back at the start of the summer inexplicably we you know and analysis of that was well they must have heard something about commander legends sure enough that is exactly what was going on and a lot of the movement leading up to Zendikar Rising makes sense in the context of if they knew what was coming for this set. Yep, Omnath, Locus of Rage Foils uh, just about doubled back in the late spring. May-ish. Went from 10 to about 20. And I mean, you can make arguments that some of this stuff is just, hey, we know we're going back to Zendikar. That's, you know, that's just going to happen. You don't need a tinfoil hat on for, you know, figuring that out. And... You know, Jason calling based on the art for Omnath that it was going to be, you know, they were going to make it four color and add white. You know, that's just solid analysis of presented facts. But it's pretty clear to me that rumors were present for this product way out in front. And we, we know that there is that mysterious user on Reddit and other, uh, you know, darker corners of the Internet that is constantly posting um this stuff and we have no reason to believe that they're posting it the day after they hear it it's entirely possible that they posted you know are sharing that with a much smaller brigade of people and then later dumping it on the broader market just because they seem to think that's fun magic players just magic players just need to be aware (laughs) leaks are constant in magic and you need, to, when you see movement, assume that they know something you don't and figure out what it is that they likely heard. I'm still convinced that all this constant banter that's been going on for the last six months about whether CEDH is moving card prices or not is rooted in people feeling like they've already, they already know that there are going to be announcements made alongside Commander Legends that's going to split that format, that's going to split Commander in two. That there'll be a commander vintage and a normal commander, and that the reserve list will be relegated to commander vintage only, or to CEDH as an official format. And so if you want to play competitive commander, you can still play at the reserve list, but if you don't want to play competitive commander, you're more on the fun side, you should just play whatever they rebrand normal commander as. Maybe it'll just stay as commander, and the other one will get a, uh, a modifier. There's just too much going on along those lines to not think some some piece of news has not dropped in public yet that, that we need to be thinking about. That seems viable, and banning the reserve lifts out of EDH and like splitting it up into its own competitive variant uh, doesn't seem like the worst idea. Um, it also seems like people could be trying to fit a question to an answer. You know, you have cards that are moving in prices that are based on some piece of information that no one... that 
you know, the general public doesn't know. So people are trying to fit that information that they do have into a mold. So you have specific cards moving in price. They're going up. People are trying to figure out why that's happening. And they're looking at their, they don't know. They're trying to put that someplace and they settle on CEDH. Like maybe that's what it is. You know, this, this answer fits the, the, the question essentially, um, which is this, this question fits the answer, but we don't actually know it. I actually just saw something similar to this over in um, something else I pay a little bit of attention to, which is Path of Exile, and the new expansion was released today, but or announced today. But pro, but they had the name of it and the theme of it under wraps, really tight. They always do, but there's always like little hints that they leave to try and get you into it. So people wrote up these big Reddit posts about how it was going to be boat themed, and it was gonna you were gonna go sailing with a bunch of pirates and collect treasure, and you were gonna fight a kraken, and here's bullet points all the different reasons why we're gonna have that. But then that those all just ended up being meaningless, and it was something entirely different. So that's just a case of people taking little bits of snippets of information they have, and then trying to fit it to something they've decided is the case, and it may or may not be. Now. I'm not saying that that's for sure what's going on here. I'm just saying I guess see that as a possibility. But we also know how many leaks are out there, how often this happens. And, like, you know, we're way down the food chain and we still hear them. Uh, so it's not like there aren't people closer to the tap who are finding this out a lot sooner than not. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, th- these guesses make sense when you talk about splitting EDH in two. But, yeah, I, I guess I, I think you're right that the overall the larger takeaway here for players is like there's a lot of information in back channels that you don't have. And, you know, we, we can only have a, a sense of how much that comes out and how soon it comes out. And you just kind of have to accept that all that foul play that happens in the real world is happening here, too. I, I just assume that given the volume of rumors we hear along the way, some super sketchy and some much more well-defined, that other people are hearing way, way more or that there is that the amount, you know, we get a trickle from the stream. Um, and then sometimes we just make good guesses. Like we, we call box toppers as a, uh, in Zendikar rising as a potential um, vehicle for the fetch delivery months ago. And we had no foreknowledge on that whatsoever. We just, that just seemed like a good idea. And, and then later it seemed like that was not going to be the case. And then just last week, rumors started circulating that indeed there were box stoppers. Um, and, you know, we also talked about the, you know, there was rumors a couple months ago about there being flip cards that had lands on one side and other stuff on the other side. Didn't see any images or anything, but those, you know, that information was definitely floating around out there. And it's unclear how broadly it was distributed. I do remember that. Oh yeah, I didn't get a chance to tell you. I hate these lands too. Now, I, I, I want to highlight that I said, I talked about how much I like the Time Swallow Remastered. I think that's a cool product. I think it's delivering players what they want. I like everything about it. These lands are stupid. These lands are stupid for at least two reasons. One is that they're uh, really obnoxious in paper. Wait, which one, what are we talking about here? The new duels? Yes. Okay, so the untyped duels like River Glide Pathway and Branch Loft Pathway and whatever. Yeah, whatever their names are. I don't even keep track anymore. But the ones... Basically, they have a land on both sides that just makes one color, and they they do not have types. They're not forests and plains and so forth, so you can't fetch them up or anything. But you can always get access to both colors when you need it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's the Tangled Land. So I'm going to rewind for a second. Uh, 
I don't mean I don't mean the tangle lands. I start I, that's what I had in my head, but I realized that's not what I was thinking about. Those don't bug me as much. It's the land spell hybrids that I hate because on the one hand they magic has always been built around mana and the the resource system that mana provides and like that's a good system and i'm not going to go into why this is that's that you could spend a week talking about this but the mana system is good and when you reduce variance like that it makes the game worse and having your having a card in your deck that is kind of a worse land and kind of a worse spell, but gets to be both at the same time, depending on which one you need, is extremely powerful. So I don't like what it does in the course of like how it smooths these decks out. And at the same time, these cards are so designed for arena because playing this in paper is gonna be so crummy. Like at least with the existing flip cards, it's like you always put them in the play on one face and then you might flip them over and you deal with that when you get there. But these could be flipping as soon as you play them. So it's gonna be so obnoxious trying to like, well, I need the white side, so I'm gonna put the white one into play face up. Uh, and so it means I immediately have to unsleeve it every single time or like they got the checklist card. Ugh, it, just, it just seems so clunky for paper play, so clunky. Yeah, it's a little, the thing about the ones that have like Valakut Awakening, is that they? You're not actually flipping them inside your deck because you got to run the checklist card, uh, as you did for things like ba- Jay's friend's prodigy. So we these just these just sit off to the side. You don't have to run the checklist card. In yeah, fact, you mo- is, yeah, you is, is that a new comp rule or something? I, I think that's the whole point. Is that you? You've always had to run checklist cards because otherwise you would be pulling them out of the sleeve and flipping them around. I I. In back when I was playing during the original Innistrad and like in a card store multiple times a week, no one used checklist cards or they use them very rarely. For the most part, everyone just pulled the card out of sleeve and turned it around. And I feel like it, at all points in time where I was playing Magic regularly in person, even way after Innistrad, mind you, uh, people rarely use checklist cards. Now, okay. maybe maybe that's like a pro REL rule that they have to use checklists. I'm not going to debate that, but like at your average FNM, that's not what's happening. Sure, I mean entirely possible, and I haven't checked in on floor rules for this for this topic, and there may, there may well be an update here. But the other the other lands are the bigger problem because the new duels you can't use you don't use a checklist card. You just literally pick the side you want to play, and you got to flip it in the moment. Well, I mean, you could play that as a checklist, right? Like, it's it's well, then you got it, and then you can bounce it, and then you might want to flip it again right. <laughs> to a different color. Yeah, 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 which is also really obnoxious, right? Especially in the landfall set. Okay, my the land in my hand is showing white, or, or should, let me rephrase that: the checklist in my hand is show is the is the is the tango land. So I pull the, I, I put that in the play. I pull the the real version out of my deck box and put that in the play as a white card. Put the checklist card off to the side. Then they bounce it. So I put the now. I guess if you're playing with a checklist, it's fine. That's not too messy. But those Tango Lands, if you play those without a checklist, it's going to be miserable, especially if there's a bunch of mechanics in the set that allow you to bounce cards to your hand. Overall, none of us get to play Paper Magic for quite some time, so I'm not overly worried about it. And I remember many people having similar complaints about, you know, double-sided cards, period, when they first showed up, and it just hasn't been that big of a deal. Well, I, I could see it bleeding some time 
in standard tournaments if we ever get back to them. So the thing is, is when those dual flip cards were, the very first dual flip cards showed up, it was a, you know, these screw with limited, which they did, but these by themselves maybe aren't the worst problem, but they open the door to all sorts of malarkey. And so far, Wizards has been really, really conservative with how they use the dual flip cards. I don't debate that whatsoever, right? Like it's actually impressive how little they've mined that design space um over the years but this is i think the next step and this is where you're like okay this is where this gets obnoxious fast and this is the type of stuff we talked about when innistrad came out when we're like the problem isn't the dual flip cards today it's the precedent that it sets all right we can probably call that a wrap (laughs) i'm such an old man on this week's episode (laughs) (laughs) we got plenty more to go over next week uh, so we'll save some for that, some for uh, for once we've seen a little bit more of this set. Uh, where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I am on Twitter. If you are willing to bear it, at Wizard Bumpin B U M P I N. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my constant haunting of the Pro Trader Discord and occasional articles on MTGPrice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. I would refer you back to the earliest stage of this podcast where we quoted a user who said it was a ridiculous amount of value. And uh, indeed it is. So come on over and try it out for a month. If you don't like it, give you your money back. But no one ever leaves like that because it's just way too good. You know how Magic players feel about their EV. You know? Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Plethora? Plethora. I've always said it correctly, but I did it wrong that time. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 235. Definitely one. People are going to call me old man, get off my lawn. I don't care. I've been playing this game for 20 years. I'm allowed to have opinions about it. Uh, Had a good time, and we will dig into it more next week, James. Okay, Boomer. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.